You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since Welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, the first episode of 2024. Will, you excited for another year of podcasting? <laughs> or- you know it, baby. I'm excited to turn up the dial. <laughs> yeah. <as well>. Yes. <laughs> this, one, <laughs> this one goes out to all the listeners out there. Yeah. Uh, the, the, no, uh, we are back, and uh, yeah, it's been uh, 2023 has been... Uh, uh, well, for me personally, it's been a very challenging year, but another great podcasting year, uh, and uh, we had a lot of fun, and now we're going to jump into 2024, and uh, I thought, it was my turn to select a film, and I thought, this year there's some films I want to tackle that we probably have always meant to tackle, or that are foundational films for our collective love of cinema. Yeah. And, and uh, this is a big one. This is a big one. This is a huge one, actually. Uh, and we'll talk more about it when we do the review and stuff and see where it stands in our lives and everything else. But I think, you know, folks who've listened to us for 15 years or maybe even for the last five probably know how we feel about this film. But we want to, I wanted to look at it critically with you. Uh, so we'll be doing The Warriors from uh, the glorious year of 1979. Yes, sir. Directed by one of uh, the... Honestly, for me, pound for pound, the most underrated director of the 70s. Oh, yeah. When you talk about great direct- directors of the 70s, and that's the the great Walter Hill. So, Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about this. And this kind of came up for a number of reasons. Uh, Arrow put a 4K and a Blu-ray set out, which, you know, uh, that's one of the reasons. And we're sponsored by Arrow this week. But also because... Uh, Recently, we kind of talked about Ryan O'Neill. We kind of talked about the driver and rest in peace, Ryan O'Neill. He passed away not long after we talked about him. And uh, I was thinking, you know, we need to cover some more Walter Hill. And and it kind of hit. It kind of struck me then, even before the release of the Warriors on physical media, the re-release. And I thought, man, we need to. We need. To, we hadn't done some Walter Hill in a while, and I wanted to do another Walter Hill film. So why not do one that's kind of really. One of the big ones in his filmography. So 
that's what we'll be talking about this week. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Um, so there's that. Uh, again, we want to thank everybody. I do have some feedback that I didn't play, and you got to forgive me, Walt, that I meant to play when we recorded last time. But uh, we were talking, we, we, you know, we record back-to-back episodes, and sometimes things get lost in translation. And uh, this voicemail got missed by me. But, Walt, I'm going to make up for it and play it right now. And uh, everything will be A-OK, I hope. <laughs> We're going to see. Uh, hang on, let me, uh, I'm trying to fire it up here. Um, if I can. <laughs> I just, I realized I didn't play it, of course, right after we stopped recording. Isn't that the way it always is? Right after we stopped recording. Yeah, man, that's how it goes. Yeah. All right, here we go. I'm going to play it now. Let me know if you can't, if you can, you should be able to hear it. Gentlemen of the Midnight Cinema, it's Walt back again. Appreciate so much what you guys do. 660 episodes. Keep on trucking. Um, you know, this year I've been watching uh, Euro horror films, some giallos, even a creamier or two, and uh, putting together my list as far as the ratings go. And uh, it will not surprise you, perhaps, that at the top of my list, uh, the usual kind of uh, classic films such as Zombie, I rate Phenomena very highly. For the record, I didn't watch a few that I've seen too much, such as Deep Red, Suspiria, and The Beyond. Those would be high also. Bottom of the list, Door to Silence by Lucio Fulci. believe it was his last movie. That's a boring movie. (laughs) Just a guy driving around. Um, Now, my question, not a this or that, but kind of a thinker question. You know, as I get older, it's not the dark, edgy material that... that uh, gets me so much as the comedy. Well, a man who combines both, David Lynch, my question for you. David Lynch, how does he stack up as far as comedy? Because to me, he's absolutely one of the funniest directors in my book, including his TV stuff. Thanks, guys. It's an interesting question. I mean, the first thing you think of when you think of David Lynch probably isn't comedy. Um, But... But I have to say, and I'm just going to say, right, I I don't know if I find David Lynch's comedy funny, but I certainly I certainly find it dark and interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I you know, he's a filmmaker, as with everything, it's uh, it's very subjective. But I I think as I've gotten older, I have learned to appreciate what he's done and kind of his worldview through a cinematic lens. And when you look at stuff like even a wild at heart, like there is certainly this sort of absurd humor in it. Right. Yes. So, uh, I have come to appreciate it and I do think that he is quite funny, but it's, you know, oddly enough, I, I tend not to think of like when I think of, you know, five words to describe his films or him, usually funny isn't one of them, but, um, now that Walt's saying this, just kind of that absurd, worldview right and some of the ridiculous characters that he he puts on film right especially with that that, that's off the top of my head without sort of doing my research that's the one that i think of yeah it's it's interesting you know david lynch to me is the definition of that director that if you have a friend or somebody you're dating or you just got married or you have even if you have somebody in your life that you've had forever and they've never really watched david lynch movies and you're like well let's watch Wild at Heart, or let's watch Eraserhead, or let's watch, you know, Blue Velvet, Blue Velvet, right? 
let's watch one of these films. Maybe was, I feel like certainly Wild at Heart, Blue Velvet, and maybe a couple other. Well, even The Straight Story, which is a very earnest film, but also it has very comedic moments. But if if you was to sit down and watch a film like that with somebody that I've never seen or never really been exposed to David Lynch that much outside of reputation, they're definitely <laughs> they're definitely going to give you that you know what the fuck look. <laughs> <laughs> while you're laughing because you've seen it for the third or fourth or fifth or 15th time at uh, some of the stuff Dennis Hopper does in Blue Velvet because I've, you know, Blue Velvet is a disturbing movie, but I find it to be, I mean, it's one of the great over the top performances. Um, I'll say that for the record. I mean, that performance by Dennis Hopper in that film is like, I, I think you have to laugh or you're just uncomfortable. And to, to see the, whoever that is you're showing it to for the first time to see their face, <laughs> the look of shock on their face <laughs> while you're sitting there laughing at it <laughs> when he punches Kyle McLaughlin because he's not talking to his friend who's so suave and is going to sing, you know, he's going to lip sync Roy Orbison, Dean Stockwell and, and into a, into a maintenance light. Just think about the ludicrousness of that whole setup. Oh man. And that that is comedy. Just this—the moment when he's like, "Paps, blue ribbon," you know, little moments like that. I mean, that's that's funny. But I'd say the yeah. first time I saw Blue Velvet, I was like, "This is bizarre." <laughs> You're processing it. It's this um, uncom makes for uncomfortable theater. <laughs> yes, yes. So if you have somebody in your life you've never shown David Lynch films, you definitely are going to get a rise out of looking over at them, which is always fun. I meet people. All the time, they're like, oh, man, I saw the most messed up movie the other day. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, well what'd you watch? You know, because I'm a movie lover and, you know, I love messed up movies. What'd you see? And they'll say something like, I don't know, like maybe they'll say something like Eraserhead or something like that. And then I'll say, well, have you ever seen X Drummer? Have you ever seen, you know, just stuff that comes off the top of my head? A Serbian film? Uh, Enter the Void? Have you ever seen? And they're like, what are you talking about? What are these films you're talking about? Uh, you know, High Tension? Uh, I'm like, uh, well, there's there's a whole world of films you don't know about. Uh, and trust me, as messed up as you think the last film you watched is, there's something more messed up out there. <laughs> I think we can all agree with that. I know you can. So, Oh, man, definitely. You know, you and I tend to be at this point in our lives where we don't chase that stuff as much, though. Yeah, yeah, we don't chase as much as we used to. Say we wouldn't, yeah. but we're not. We're not Quint looking for that great white in it as much anymore. No, no. Now and now, especially since more and more of the great whites or the uh, the white whales, so to speak, are more and more available. You don't really have to go looking for them as much as you used to. Like uh, you know, the Ken Russell's The Devils or something like that, which is it's still kind of hard to see, but it's more accessible than it ever has been. And and uh, there's still some things out there I really want to see, and and there's still some challenging films out there. As a matter of fact, you know, I was thinking of you the other day because I was looking at some list and I can't remember for the life of me what it was, but I saw that a Belgian horror film made a top 10 list uh, called Megalomaniac or Megalomania or something like that. Yeah. And they said it was transgressive and to, uh, you know, and just an unreal experience. And, and then when I realized it's from Belgium, I thought to myself, thinking of you, I was like, what is it with these Belgian filmmakers? They really do. What is going on? What is in the water in Belgium? Yeah, no kidding. Because they really will. I mean, talk about a transgressive film haven. Belgium is one of them. Uh, they, they'll come out swinging. I don't know what's going on over there. 
<laughs> but there's filmmakers that have come out of Belgium that are, oof, man. But anyway, now I got to see that film. Uh, I can't remember. The, I think it's called Megalomaniac. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's Kareem Wilhaj. I'm just looking at it right now. Yeah. I, I saw the trailer for it and thought, ooh, that looks interesting. Uh, but then lost track of it. And uh, now it's made some list and I have to see it. Yeah, that's it. So there you go. But I, I often think of you and there's certain countries, me and you've talked about, especially over the 15 years of this podcast. Yeah. And it seems like Belgium's come up a few times. I, f- I feel like X Drummer was a Belgian fi- Belgian film. Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it a Belgian film? It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And trust me, guys, if you guys haven't seen X Drummer, that is one of the most transgressive and bizarre film experiences that I've had in the 15 years of doing this podcast. Agreed. And Corn Mortier is a filmmaker who she's like seek out his words. His words. Fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah. His words. His work. <laughs> his work is incredible. And he's one of these, you know, filmmakers that's kind of fallen through the cracks unless you've been on the festival circuit over the past twenty years. And twenty second of May is one that still hasn't been seen by a lot of people. I know he's got one that came out in twenty eighteen, Angel, which uh, I'm meaning to see. But yeah, if you can see those films, X Drummer's fairly available um he's a good filmmaker for sure yeah um actually you know it's funny 22nd of may the last i looked it was on tubi no way yeah it was and uh, i don't know if it still is and i think i put it on my watch list and i but i don't know if it's still on there but that's one since you covered it uh for the tiffs of that stuff that i've been wanting to see and i put it on there and uh yeah i haven't i haven't seen it Ooh, he just He's got a film that came out this year called Skunk that uh, has, has an 8.9 out of 10 on IMDb, but of course it's only got 15 ratings. Liam grows up in a family. I'm going to read the synopsis and see if this sounds like his kind of film where alcohol, violence, and sex dominate to become a confused teenager who goes beyond the pale to break with his past. Yeah, it sounds like a, a Cone Mortier film. Yeah. <laughs> it probably is uh, bothersome. And, of course, it has those great uh, Belgium and, and uh, d- uh, those names. Uh, there's an actor in here named Dirk Roofstut. Uh Yeah. Yeah, they... Uh, <laughs> the names can be... Complicated, yes. Complicated, too. I got to see this film now, this skunk film. Yeah. So that's his, that's his most recent film. But he doesn't make... I mean, he's, uh, he's getting... Uh, he's not a young man, so he doesn't make that many films. But I think... The reason why is because um, his films are, uh, they're, they're just, they're, they're tough. They're tough. Let's just put it that way. There's still moments in Next Drummer I'm thinking about. First of all, talk about a sense of humor that's bizarre. It's, yeah. And second of all, just moments that make me cringe even thinking about them now. Oh, man. So it, it, it can be rough. But what an experience. And I don't even know if X Drummer is super available to see, for the record. Honestly, I don't know. I don't know that. That's too bad. Yep. I don't know if it's on any streaming services or anything. So, uh, Anyway, I didn't know this would turn into us talking about X Drummer so much. But hey, what do you do? Here we are. <laughs> uh, yeah, the other thing Walt talks about. You know, uh, let me just say this for the record. I, here's what I find myself doing as I've gotten older. Um. First of all, it's been this way for a long time. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to start podcasting. But I've always kind of been a person who I never really am big on seeing films when they come out. 
I've, I've never really been that way. Maybe when I was younger, I was. But ever since home video has existed, I've kind of, you know, I'll watch stuff randomly. And when we get into what we've been watching, you'll see again this this week, I realize for me, it's really just uh, I'm not I'm not working off a checklist or anything. I just kind of whatever kind of floats my boat in that moment, I'll watch. And uh, I, I can't really for the life of me, I can't. Say, you know, this year I'm going to watch more horror films or this year I'm going to watch more action films. I, I, I don't know why, but for me, it's just, you know, film is such a a part of my life that uh, for me, it's, you know, it can be blockbusters. It can be uh, transgressive films. It can be silent films. It really just is whatever I'm in the mood for in that red hot moment. And you'll see that when I talk about what I've been watching this week, because I mean, there was one that I watched around Christmas day and stuff that I, I don't know if I ever wanted to see the film again, but for whatever reason, I, I fired it up and, uh, just wanted to go back and look at it and, uh, see if I was right or wrong about it. And I'll talk about that here either on this show or next week's show. But, um, it's just, you know, for me, it's just that way. There are a list of shamers, obviously, but the great thing about doing a podcast guys is that, you get to knock list of shamers off your list. <laughs> and that's, that, that's always the best. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, let's get into it. Let's get into what we've been watching. What have you been up to, man? Uh, I've been up to a few things. You know, the year started off kind of, or the year, the month started off a little bit quiet, being a festive season. <clears throat> but I've caught some steam as I've gone along here, um, let me get into what uh, what I've been watching. Where did I leave off? Did I talk about the whole? I don't think I talked about the holdovers on the air, did I? No. Uh, you might not have. Uh, I don't know if you did or not either. I can't remember because I couldn't remember if you saw it. But it's funny you bring that up because I did. I, I watched that yesterday. Okay, so we can talk about that in a sec here. So I'll just quickly jump through two. Uh, I watched somehow for the first time, a very Murray Christmas. Oh, yeah, the Bill Murray thing, yeah. Yeah, the Sofia Coppola-directed Bill Murray Christmas special. I, I really hated this. <laughs> I did. It's, too, it's too, too Murray for you? It is, and it feels very half-assed and self-satisfied. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it takes the worst, or it takes qualities that... You know, people, like you said, associate with Bill Murray and it really turns them up. And I don't know. I love Coppola. I quite like Murray, although his stick does wear a little thin with me from time to time, admittedly. But, uh, yeah, this just wasn't it, man. Did not enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, next up, decided it was late. My wife and I had finished wrapping a few, well, no, she finished wrapping a few presents. I only generally wrap her presents. Um, I decided, hey. Let's watch Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. Hey, Christmas movie. Time for a Christmas movie. She'd never seen it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. So I got to say, watching this as like a 20-year-old or 19-year-old, whatever I was when it came out, was a different experience than when we watched it for review as a grown married man, uh, probably around 40 years old. Uh -huh. And it was very different watching it with my wife. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very acutely aware of the politics and dynamics of relationships and yeah, um, vantage points. 
uh, a little more when you got someone sitting beside you. But nonetheless, I'll maintain that uh, this is hand-in-glove crews in this film. I've been very vocal about my disdain for Cruise, but I think he's perfect in the film. I love him in the film. I love the film. Um, and I'm glad that in the past decade or so, it seems like, not that it was panned, it was never panned, but it feels like it's really cemented itself as a, a masterpiece. Yeah, it, it, that's an interesting one. I, I can still remember going to the theaters on opening night, and it was one of the last times I went to a theater and there was a line to get in. Mm-hmm. And I think it was because of the orgy scene. Everybody was completely fascinated because they had heard that there was this crazy orgy scene. And it is pretty It is pretty crazy. Um, uh, of course, you know, we see stuff that makes it seem tame. But for the general public, it uh, it is a pretty transgressive moment in cinema. And I think people were really... This is, you got to remember, this is still the era when the internet was still young. People didn't really uh, know what they were going to see. They didn't know if they were going to see Tom Cruise in the orgy or Nicole Kidman in the orgy. And I think people were mad curious about that kind of stuff, right? Oh, definitely, people. That That's absolutely it. Yeah. And absolutely. I remember it made pretty good money uh, that first weekend stuff. And, of course, you know, Kubrick had passed away already before it came out. But uh, So he didn't really I – don't, I don't remember how much money it made. But we reviewed it a long time ago and – that that was a that was I remember that episode that was the uh, Salem's Lot Eyes Wide Shut uh, episode we did <laughs> I believe those two <laughs> Toby Hooper and Stanley Kubrick <laughs> there you go that's the that's the gentleman's got to midnight cinema in a nutshell right there precisely <laughs> um, pivoted from that and it was my pick for movie night uh, I was dying to watch the holdovers yeah. And- and uh, I got to say, man, did I love this film. Uh, so I watched it yesterday. Uh, I'll bring it up as part of what I've been watching as well. And, uh, Will, I got to tell you, I was crying yesterday. Oh, man, what a film. Uh, it really is. So this is a great example of there's nothing new in this story. No, it does not try and reinvent the wheel in any not, capacity. Not in any way, shape, or form, but... When you get great performances, a great filmmaker, and a great story, you don't need to reinvent the wheel because the important thing is the piece itself. And this movie grabbed a hold of me, hook, line, and sinker, and didn't let me go. And I felt great emotion and everything. And I got to be honest with you, I saw the preview for it and stuff, and I like Paul Giamatti a lot. I know you do as well, but... I, I thought, well, you know, I'll see that, but it doesn't look like, you know, again, it doesn't look like anything that's like, you know, is going to jump out at me, but I wanted to watch it and man, I got caught up in it. I, I got to say it, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful little movie. It is so wonderful. And I want to give flowers to Dominic Sessa here. Yeah. Yeah. All intents and purposes, first performance, pain, great director. You know, he's not a, his volume of his work is not uh, such that he's not working like Takashi Miike in the 90s, you know, but um, what a great job. I mean, Sessa just turns in an incredibly nuanced, all the, all three leads, incredibly nuanced. Oh, yeah, they're all great. Realized, uh, fleshed out performances. Um, everyone's given room to breathe and stretch their legs and for us to get to know them is more than just archetypes. And can we talk about 
the the authenticity, like the film stock, like this film legitimately looks seventies without it seeming gimmicky. Yeah, so that's interesting because when it started, I was like, oh man, this could go wrong because yeah. you know he's going with uh, he's going with a look here. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, off off the bat, I'm a little worried, but he never really, except for the very beginning, the intro. He never really calls attention to it again after that. No, it feels very organic. It's not like Grindhouse where there's the hisses and pops and the mm-hmm. change the reel kind of stuff. It, it's just, it works quite well. Um, the soundtrack for this film is wonderful. It is. It I really listened is. to it for like a couple weeks out. Like I listened to it through most of the Christmas break after I watched this on uh, December 18th. This totally feels like a film that Hal Ashby would have made. This, absolutely. Yeah, is a Hal Ashby film. Yeah, it's it's a modern Hal Ashby film, and if that's what he was going for, I'd say he nailed it. Yeah, it yeah. really is. I mean, and it's just, and also let's just say it. I mean, it's a great father son slash father figure film. Oh man, yeah, it, it's a it's a great version of that, and I mean, I, I found it incredibly touching. I really did. I, I was moved by it deeply. Yeah, yeah, I was deeply, deeply moved by this film. I went out and. I posted something on my story. I called a couple of people. I said, like, you got to watch this film. Yeah. yeah. If we did a top 30 this year, it would definitely be in the top 30. I don't know. It, may, it might even be in the top 10. It, it's that good. It's that, that good. It's that good. I would agree with that statement. It would, I would say off the top of my head, it would probably make the top 10. Yeah. For it's, sure. It's really that good. I mean, folks, I, I, I'm glad Will liked it as much as I did. I, I can't recommend you check out the holdovers enough. No. Agreed. Yep. Agreed. Um, that was kind of the high watermark. Got a few more here. I'll quickly run through. Okay. Boy Called Christmas. Not up my alley. <laughs> I was doing paperwork. I don't know. Maybe it was the Christmas spirit. Maybe it was seeing Toby Jones and Sally Hawkins in the cast. but I th- And Jim Broadbent. I thought, okay. I'll, I'll watch it in the background. So I'll say this. I'm not into magic and fairy tales and all that stuff. I'm really not. Mm-hmm. When I saw the cast, um, which I love, you know, the, the principles that I had mentioned, I felt a little more comfortable watching it and, and kind of giving it my time. So, I, you know, I'll say this about the film. I think it's a very handsome production. Um, and I feel like there is a really wonderful message here about – sort of tradition and how life forces us to repurpose and re-examine and make new traditions in our lives uh, because of our love for the people in our lives. So, yeah, uh, I've seen worse. I'll see worse again. Damning it with faint praise, certainly. I'm not the target audience for this, but uh, it was was a well-made film and, and everyone was game in the production. So... You can do worse. <laughs> um, annual watch of a Christmas story. I've said it a million times. Love it. Obviously, what can I say? Although I was a little under the weather when I watched it this year, and I don't know, I was a bit more crabby, so I didn't really enjoy it as much as I usually do. I've seen it so many times at this point that yeah. So the, this is there. There's a handful of films uh, <laughs> that I would have to remove myself from for years to do an honest review of, and that's one of them. There's actually a channel here in the States. I don't know if there's a channel in Canada that does it, but there's a channel here in the States. I don't remember which channel it was, but anybody here in the States knows what I'm talking about. That on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, or maybe just Christmas Eve, they show that film 24 hours a day. 
Yes. So I am aware of this. Yeah. And uh, look, I loved A Christmas Story when I saw it when I was young. I've seen it dozens of times since then. I still think it's a great film. I really do. But if I never saw A Christmas Story again, I'd be okay. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, that's where I'm at with it. I'm not saying anything bad about it. I have nothing bad to say about the film. I'll just be honest with you right now. I, I quite love it. But yeah. if I never see it again, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm with you. I mean, I'll, I, I, maybe not quite that far, but I definitely yeah. i am due to wait a few years, I think, because you know what really bothered me this year? And it, it has always bothered me a little bit, but because I was in a real crap, not overly crabby, but crabbier than usual mood watching it was, it always kind of grosses me out and I'm annoyed by <laughs> the little brother's piggy eating scene. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. like, man, just make that fucking kid eat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was he was the Darren McGavin of the family. I was, I was absolutely <laughs> fittingly yeah. Darren McGavin. And I got the lamp to prove it. Uh, he's a he's a very relatable I, I I as I've watched that film more and more as I've gotten older, he's a very relatable father on Christmas. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Where he's like both jovial and happy, uh, but also kind of happy it's almost over. <laughs> Yeah, it, it does strike a really good tone, right? I mean, it's very, it's, in some ways, as as outlandish as it is, and kind of big as it plays itself, it's mm-hmm. has these little moments of reality. It does. That's what it makes does. it. That's what makes it work. I think that's why it stood the test of time. So, speaking of big moments in films, the next one I watched was uh, was William's choice. We watched Home Alone Two: Lost in New York. <laughs> So I haven't seen this movie since it came out, well, whatever year that was, 93, 94, 95. I don't know what year that was. Going to be like, feels like 92, 93. Yeah, I don't know. I, but I haven't seen it since then. I've, I've seen the first Home Alone several times, obviously. Yeah. Honestly, I haven't watched it in probably 10 years, but I really haven't seen the second one uh, except that one time. There's some things about it I remember liking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So listen, it's okay. If I watched it now for the first time as a grown man, obviously it's not going to work for me. But having kids, having lived through it, I, I quite enjoy it. It's funny to watch it though, because when we're watching it, there's a few things that just would never happen today in the film. Um. <laughs> Joe Pesci and and uh, <laughs> Daniel Stern. I mean, they get brutalized. It is yes. so violent. Yeah, even more so than the first one. Yes, I remember that. I remember that. Oh my god! <laughs> like, I wonder if this would get made today. I it wouldn't get made like this. It just, it is so violent towards them. <laughs> um, and just even that scene with uh, sort of this the full film they use angels with dirty faces. Where the guy guns down his girlfriend as he's just laughing. (laughs) You would never see that today in a kid's film. Yeah, yeah. Ever, ever, ever. (laughs) But uh, nonetheless, one of the big charms of this film, I I do like the the New York setting and it, you know, it follows a lot of the same formulas, but uh, I love the Tim Curry performance in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things I remember liking quite a bit about it. Oh, man. I I always say to the kids, oh, what a joy. And and every year, every time we watch it, I go... Can you guys believe that's the original Pennywise? Yeah. I you know, what, I, I saw something on Tim Curry, you know, because he had a stroke uh, yeah, about a decade ago or whatever. And I always find that so tragic because really, honestly, I mean, he's he's one of the great film actors. I, I miss Tim Curry so much. 
He's tremendous. He's one of those guys, kind of like even maybe he's a little more exposed than Raul Julia, but one of these guys that did theater could do it all. And I don't think they're the body of work and the acclaim their body of work got or the opportunities they were afforded necessarily is in lockstep with how talented they were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's just, oh man, it's so tragic that we're not going to get probably any more Tim Curry performances. Yeah. Um, I mean, he just, I, I loved him. I loved him as a kid. Uh, there's something mesmerizing about his face and the way he would act. And uh, he's just, you know, I was thinking about this the other day because I think Clue's getting a 4K release, and he's great in Clue. It's so good in Clue. And he's just, everything I think he was ever in, he is one of the best things in it. Agreed. I can't think of anything he's done where I thought he shit the bed. He is always, like you said, if not the best thing, among the best things. Yes, almost he always. Just, yeah, he's just he's so good, so good. I mean, he's done some junk. Don't get me oh, wrong. Sure. Uh, but the at the baby. same, yeah, at the same time, uh, man, he's, I, I just, I miss him. I just, I miss him. I miss him so bad. Same. Uh, I'll just talk about what two more quick here. Uh, watched it's a wonderful knife. Oh yeah. I saw this. I saw, well, first of all, I saw it was being sold to me. Uh, it's on one of the streaming services, right? Shutter. Shutter? Yeah. So it was being sold to me on that, and I thought, well, that can go one of two ways. And then I saw you watch it, and I was like, well, good. Now I'll know which way it goes. <laughs> I don't have to. I don't have to dive in. I'll let him do it. <laughs> well, yeah, and I'm glad because that goes both ways. So, <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so <laughs> I uh, I didn't like this film very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. <laughs> I, I think like uh, the words you used were avoid or something. Or something yeah, like that. Yeah, so this one, <clears throat> so I wrote a little review on Letterboxd, as we're known to do sometimes, and it's got this lazy ass, I'm quoting myself here, lazy ass, back to the future to energy. Uh, Justin Long is channeling this sort of Martin Short by way of Aloysius O'Hare with like a dash of Connell Cochran from Halloween 3 energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just feels so lazy and weak and uninspired. Um Here's the thing, like right, someone, the, one of the guys, or one of the people that wrote Freaky, which I think is a pretty fun body swap film, high concept horror with Vince Vaughn, yeah. um, wrote this. This is so lazy. It's so lazy. The killer design is lovely. The great killer design, um, you know, but God, it just, it feels very lazy to me. Like it feels like it, it the worst, again, quoting myself, like the worst impulses of Len Wiseman and Eli Roth. Oh, the worst impulses. Yeah. Cause those guys have, they have moments, right? But some of yeah, the, some of moments. the stuff that, yeah, that their bad moments are, well, their bad moments are kind of, ugh. it just, there's a few good moments, but like I gave it a five and a half, right? Okay. Five and a half. Catherine Isabel from ginger snaps shows up as like the cool lesbian aunt in this. And it's fun to see her. And, you know, but God, man, I really was bothered by the Justin Long performance. And I find Justin Long likable enough, but just what a lazy film. It just felt like, man, you're too satisfied with how lazy this is. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, it's, 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 like, in, it's interesting. It took this long for somebody to come up with the title. It's a wonderful knife. It's, it's, it's one of those ones that was probably right there in front of us the whole time. Well, yeah. And it's, it just felt, this really does feel like they had the title. Mm-hmm. And they were going to repurpose it and and sort of, you know, 
work backwards from there. Wow. Right. That's what it really feels like. It's, it's too bad. And I feel like you're getting a lot of these high concept horror films. Listen, I'm all for it. Totally killer would make my top 30 of the year. Everyone I've shown that film to or that I've talked to dug it. They have a smile on their face talking about it. Like, it's so fun. I'm like, yeah, it's great. It was so fun. It gets right. Everything this gets wrong. Well, yeah. But anyway, Mm. enough that film. Uh, I watched um, one more here. If I can find it. Uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Chicken soup <laughs> with a Christmas soul. Yeah, I've seen that one several times. Yeah, look at this. This one's bulletproof. I could never say a bad word about this one. Never say a bad word about this one. Um, that's it. That's that's all I watched. I'll save some for uh, the next show. Yeah. Um, I was just looking at Tim Curry. Uh, yeah, he, he, he still does voice work um, because he can still speak quite well. Um, but he doesn't, uh, he obviously he can't walk. That's the problem. So it's a shame. It's a real shame, but you know, if he does a lot of cartoon voice work and things like that, so I guess at least, well, he did up to 2020. I don't think he's done much since, but at least we have that going for us. Does video game work, stuff like that. He did have a great voice and a great way of saying things. So, oh, big time. So it, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I just, I miss Tim Curry, man. Miss Tim Curry, really do. Uh, okay, I got a few things I can talk about. I'll obviously skip over the holdovers, but not because of lack of loving it, which you heard us talk about. Love. Yeah. Uh, I did a rewatch of A Bronx Tale. Oh. Uh, I know you watched this not too long ago. Yeah, not too long ago, man. Not too long ago. This is a movie that I always liked. I really did. Uh, it is, uh, I mean, I think a lot of time when it came out, it got a lot of criticism for being a very Scorsese type of film and everything else. But I mean, De Niro had worked with Scorsese so much. I mean, it kind of makes sense that he would make a film and it would have a, some Scorsese feel to it. And, uh, I didn't have a problem with that. I know some people did, but I didn't have a problem with that. But I got to tell you, man, as time has gone on this film, I don't remember what you said about it. I don't remember at the time. I think you're going the same way I went, but let's see. But this film, it's one of those ones that just keeps getting better and better mm-hmm. as time goes on. And the father-son stuff is oh, so powerful in this movie. And it's another example of kind of the holdovers in a way. The father-son and the father-figure film that really just hits home. And, yeah. man, it's so good. It's so good. There is some acting weirdness in it and stuff of course he used a lot of locals and a lot of people that you know weren't actors and stuff that was a choice so that makes for some awkward moments but mm-hmm. man de niro is so good the kids are good uh and um chas palmentary is so good he is so good in in this film that any other things outside of that i i don't i don't care i think the film is good there's moments where uh, characters don't say anything and they just do stuff with their face. And this is where, first of all, De Niro's great at that. But this is also as a filmmaker where he really understands that you don't have, you can do something with just your face or just a reaction. You don't have to say anything. And he does that with uh, Chas Palminteri and himself here and even the kids. And I think it's really, really good in that way. Mm-hmm. Some of the, the racial stuff is ham handed. I have to say. Yes. There's a few things that haven't aged. Well, I, yes. You know, 
but by and large, yeah, yeah. I'm okay with with yeah. you know doing the Scorsese stuff. Yeah, yeah, I am too, and I think he did a really good job. I mean, I certainly think this is better than the other film he directed. I think uh, was the Good Shepherd or something like that, which I think was the Mad Damon film or whatever. I was not a big fan of that one. I'd, I'd have to go back and look at it, but I just remember being kind of bored throughout. I still think this one has aged the best of the two films he's directed. I don't think he'll direct anymore. He seems, you know, he's he's getting up there in age, so I don't think you'll see much more of him. Uh, let me get into a couple of interesting watches. One, a rewatch, and uh, then I'll I'll stop there and save some for the next episode. So, for whatever reason, I have no clue why, I decided to fire up a rewatch, uh, and I really, well, I have no clue why, because I had seen this film, and I didn't really, I mean, I, I it was, Okay, but uh, it's funny you bring up the cruise because I I rewatched Jack Reacher, the cruise film from 2012. Yes. Now I don't know why I really don't why I decided to watch it, but I thought to myself maybe there's something I missed. Sometimes I'll go back and watch something, yep. and I just remember kind of being middle of the road on this. I will say this: I liked it a little bit more this time, but not much. It is very much middle of the road Tom Cruise. Yeah. In some ways, um. He's not, of course, this, this is the film for me, you know, there's a Reacher TV show now and they got an actor, uh, that plays Reacher on the prime TV show. And he is definitely what Reacher is is described as in the novels more so than Tom Cruise. But again, the problems I have with this film are still the same. They're still, um, the, the Tom, there's there's too much explaining everything and not enough moving, and this one I think overdoes it. Now it has some great moments. I think the sniper shooting at the beginning is really good, and I think uh, there's some pretty good Tom Cruise moments. Uh, if you're a Tom Cruise fan, or even if you're not a Tom Cruise fan, there's definitely some movie star Tom Cruise moments. Um, this, of course, is post Tom. There, there's there's going to be when people go back and look at Tom Cruise movies, there's going to be. The Tom Cruise, I want to prove myself as an actor, period, which is eyes wide shut, like you just talked about, Magnolia, you know, Color of Money, films like that. Yep. And then there's going to be the post Tom Cruise taking control of his <laughs> of his career. And this is definitely that, right? And I don't have a problem with that because Tom Cruise makes the movies. Tom, Tom Cruise makes Tom Cruise movies. Uh, he doesn't make movies the outside of that. He, he knows what he's doing. And I have to give him credit for that. Um, and this is definitely one of those. I think this is one of those that doesn't really work completely. Um, but, you know, I, I don't dislike him as well. I don't know if dislikes the right word, but I definitely don't dislike him as much as you do. But um, I did. I, I do enjoy his films for the record. I don't know why. I don't, I don't I don't know. Sometimes his films really speak to me like oblivion for whatever reason. It spoke to me and I liked it quite a bit. And, this one I just wanted to rewatch, and I did, and I I liked it a little bit more. I think Christopher McQuarrie is becoming an interesting filmmaker for a guy that was a screenwriter and stuff. He he really handles the big films, uh, interestingly, quite well. Yeah, he, he definitely honest. does. I would I would say I'd be intimidated, but it seems like he's not. But I guess if Tom Cruise is on your side, though, you got you know you got something going for you because you know you got uh, arguably arguably the most powerful actor in Hollywood, right? I'd say he probably still is, even though the most recent uh, um, Mission Impossible film wasn't as big a hit as he anticipated. 
But, I mean, Maverick was huge. Huge. So, anyway. Uh, and then I did, uh, I did, a, I didn't do another rewatch, but I had, so, um, I'll, I'll talk about both these films. I was going to save one of them for next week, but I'll talk about both these films. I wanted to watch Maestro, the film, uh, that came out on Netflix directed by Bradley Cooper about Leonard Bernstein. Uh, I wanted to watch that film, but I'm a bit of a completist, uh, as a film buff. And I know you can be too. I thought, well, you know, he directed this film and he stars in it. I need to go and watch the last one he did. So I know how you feel about A Star is Born because you talked about it a long time ago. And I know it, it, it rubbed you the wrong way. Um, well, I got to say, I, I hate to say this, but I really liked A Star is Born. <laughs> I was, but listen, a lot of people did. Yeah, I loved it. I didn't, at first, I was totally catching the vibe you were catching. Yep. I was like, ooh, I don't know. This is going to be, I don't know if I can do it. And there is one thing about it I did not like. And that's, uh, uh, I understand that Bradley Cooper is supposed to be an alcoholic, but I don't like that I had to turn on subtitles to understand what he was saying sometimes. And listen, don't get me wrong. I think both he uh, and, was it Stephanie Germanata? Is that her, her actual name? Uh, something like that. Yeah, Lady Gaga, Stephanie Germanata. I can't remember her. I, I think they're both great in the film. I just think the way it's written to really squeeze sort of maximum sort of maudlin. Yes. That really bothered me. But yeah. I do think that I, kudos to him. He was pretty good. Uh, they're both good in the roles. I just and maybe I got to rewatch. Maybe that'll be my reacher rewatch. Um, <laughs> Your reach around. You know, my reach around <laughs> wife loves the film and I love a good reach around, don't I? But, um, but, uh, nice. you know, I, I got to rewatch it, I think, because like I said, I, I would never yeah. roll my eyes. Cause it, there's, I think there's, there's some good work in there for sure. Yeah. It's there's just, definitely the writing. Yeah. Gone. Definitely some good work in there. I got to say, uh, Bradley Cooper's really good in the movie, but, uh, Sam Elliott's really good. There's some good father, son, brother stuff in there that's touching a really good moment a really really good moment between bradley cooper and sam elliott that's really powerful i really liked um i won't say anything because for those who haven't seen it it'll spoil the movie probably in some ways anyway uh lady gaga yeah she's a you know i've i i don't listen to that kind of music um but i've always admired lady gaga Mm -hmm. I, i like her um uniqueness I, I think she's very talented. Yeah, super she's- talented lady. Uh, I haven't seen. I, I started House of Gucci, and for whatever reason, I stopped watching it. I, oh, I, that one looks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've I've heard. You know, it's it's pretty broad in some ways. Actually, it's kind of weird. Adam Driver has this thing for playing Italians. He did. Uh, he's in the Michael Mann movie too. At, uh, you know, he plays Enzo, man. Yeah, he plays Enzo Ferrari. But uh, man, I have a bit of a thing. You know, call yeah. it. It hits too close to home from a family perspective. <laughs> yeah, I don't like Ita- non-Italians playing Italians, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, she is. I mean, she's Italian, but she's American Italian. Yeah, she's very Italian. But, but he, he does a pretty dreadful. Like, uh, yeah, like you said, I think broad is a good way. Yeah, from what I I've didn't heard. Watch it, but that's the. As soon as I heard that, I thought, and no, and even what's his name? Um, what, Jared Leto. Man. <laughs> It looks like what the fuck are you doing in this film? Yeah, well, that it just because he does really silly things sometimes, right? So, well, yeah, he's 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 a bizarre. 
I think as time has gone on, people have realized Jared Leto's he likes to take the piss. He he definitely is. He's not going to show up and just be Jared Leto. <laughs> no, he really enjoys um, disappearing into characters. But the problem is he's so. And I'm just going to say this: he's so attractive a man. Yeah, that it's almost impossible for him to disappear. <laughs> Even when he puts on tons of makeup, I'm like, oh, that's Jared Leto. You can just tell. So it's just, it's kind of amazing. I actually saw a video of him and his his son, an ugly Christmas sweater video. And I remember seeing the video and I remember thinking, Jesus, his son looks older than he does. And he's, you know, Jared Leto's the same age as me. And yep. uh, that's hard to believe because the guy does not look like 50. I mean, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just going to say it. I mean, the guy does, has aged incredibly well. Yeah, he has. So, you know, whatever, you know, but, but I, you know, I, I don't really mind. I don't mind Jerry Leto. I like that he's, he's broad and, and that he takes chances um, because he could just fall back on. I mean, he could just be making, you know, goofy. Well, he could be making romantic comedies or goofy action movies with his looks, but I actually wouldn't mind some Jerry Leto action movies. That'd be kind of fun. But anyway, uh, neither here nor there. But uh, yeah, no, I like the Star is Born. So, I liked it quite a bit, as a matter of fact. So I, then I fired up Maestro, which is on Netflix. Uh, oh, exec- I didn't realize that. Yeah, executive produced by Spielberg and Scorsese. I think some folks have been circling this thing for a while. Now, this one's got a little bit of uh, uh, controversy behind it, too, because uh, Bradley Cooper, I don't believe, is Jewish. The, the, and he's got a prosthetic nose. And they and- added, Yeah, they added a little bit to his nose to make it more Jewish and... Of course, that immediately put, you know, the heels, the, you know, the hair stood up on some people's backs and stuff. But look, I, I don't think Bradley Cooper was going out to make fun of Jewish people. I think, Absolutely not. I think he just wanted to play this part and he felt like it spoke to him. And honestly, it's just kind of disturbing how much he, I went and looked at pictures of Leonard Bernstein. It's actually disturbing kind of how much he looks like him. Yeah. And some of the makeup in this film, especially the old age makeup, is pretty fucking well done. I'm just going to say, I mean, I usually don't like old age makeup, but man, that this one is really well done. Uh, here's what I'll say about the movie. The movie's really good. Um, not as good as A Star is Born, but not amazing either. I, I liked it quite a bit. It's an interesting love story. It kind of rushes through some things. Um, it's a little all over the place in some ways. The performances though are really good uh, from Carrie Mulligan. Bradley Cooper is, he's much better than this than he was in a star is born. I didn't mind him in a star is born. Matter of fact, I like the music more in a star is born because that's more the type of music I kind of listen to. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the Bradley Cooper stuff, not the Lady Gaga stuff. Cause that's more pop music stuff. Not that I have a problem with that stuff. It's just not what I listen to. I'm yeah. mostly guitar driven type music. So I like that stuff. And this is not really my forte, but he's really good in this film playing this, this uh, great composer, uh, bisexual, um, complicated uh, character. And uh, I, I really, this was the movie for me. I've never been a huge Bradley Cooper fan. No, uh, same here. I just, I, I think he's fine. Yeah. I just don't think he, he's done anything for me. That's been great. This is the first time where I watched a movie of his and I thought, man, he was really good in that film. And I would argue that he's great in the movie. He is really good. Like if he gets nominated for an Oscar, I would not be surprised. I don't think he'd win, 
but I would not be surprised if he doesn't get nominated for an Oscar for this performance because he's that good. I mean, he's really, really good in the film. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, rec- I, I would recommend the film. Uh, and, you know, honestly, after watching these two films he's directed, he's, he's a pretty solid filmmaker. He is he's, not bad. He's a guy to me that it's always struck me that he has a real passion for it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like he loves film. He loves the craft. He loves – so kudos to him. Yeah. Because right? he put himself out there and he could fail. Yes. Yeah. In fact, it's the passion. And, and there's been this thing going on. I've seen on Instagram this reel where it shows – it says, you know – he spent six years practicing to do six minutes of uh, composing in that big scene uh, in in the film. So who knows? But I, I think that he's a guy that cares and better to have people that care about their craft and don't. And one more thing about Germanata. I'm actually very excited for uh, her in Todd Phillips' uh, Joker 2, Folia de. I think she's going to really be awesome in the film so yeah that that's uh that is i'm never worried about her in the film no 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 that is honestly that film could be the oh, train wreck of all train wrecks I, it, it could be or it could teeter right on the edge and be like that sort of inspired insanity yeah but here's what i do know joaquin phoenix and lady gaga will be amazing in it no matter what it is i agree it, it could be the worst movie ever made, and I guarantee you those two will be amazing no matter what. They'll be committed. Yes. To the, uh, performances. <laughs> and for that, I admire them. I really do. Uh, again, I have no anticipation of loving that film. I really don't. Uh, I really, I mean, I understand why a sequel's made. I mean, yeah. the first film made a billion dollars. I get it. But yeah. I, at the same time, I'm like, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like in a world of sequels, you're like, why? <laughs> why do we need a sequel to that film? You know, we didn't get a sequel to a King of Comedy. So I don't know. This is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This might be it. And maybe Todd Phillips will, maybe he'll ape um, another, maybe he'll ape New York, New York. As uh, Supposedly it's got some musical elements, so maybe he'll ape that. I mean... Don't get me wrong. I, I don't mind that he aped King of Comedy, but it just, I, I don't know. It, that, that movie, I'll I just say this, has the potential to be the biggest train wreck of, of train wrecks. I mean, it really yeah. does. But we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I, I like risk-taking. I, I'll, I'll say that. All right. That's all I got for what we've been watching. I'll save some stuff for next week. <laughs> we always go long and strong when we record this first episode. We're almost an hour in. Um, but in saying that, um, I was looking at my watch, which I don't even wear, and oh. uh, you know what time it is, huh? I got an Apple Watch, so oh. I do know what time it is. Oh, do you really? You got an Apple Watch? Fancy. Fancy. <laughs> what time does the Apple Watch say? Let me look at it. Let me press the buttons. <laughs> yeah. Oh my! It is time for this or that. Yeah, and then the Apple Watch reacts so much quicker than my clicking of the mouse. So you know that's what goes. It's one of those things where I have it ready every time, and as soon as you say it's time for this or that, or I say it, I uh, I click, and it doesn't. I either I miss it, or I click wrong. I don't know what I do, but anyway, it's part of the charm, folks. All right, let's knock out a few of these. Uh, I got I got one interesting one for you that I want to throw your way, but uh, it's only one. 
but I'm definitely going to throw it your way. So go ahead. What do you got? Are you turned up? <laughs> Are you there even? Matter of fact, <laughs> I was not. Tell Supreme. You, uh, that is also part of the charm of the gentleman's cabinet night. <laughs> I think after 15 years, I get it right. And yet you would be wrong in thinking that. Um, All right. Better scenery tour. I don't want to say necessarily better actor. Better scenery tour. Ray Liotta or Chaz Palminteri? Oh, that's not not bad. That's not bad. Um, Look, I I like Chaz. I really do. Um, But I got to go Ray Liotta on this one. Uh, Ray Liotta is... I, he's going to be missed. I really liked what Ray Liotta could do when he put, I remember there's a scene in, was it the place beyond the pines? I believe it is. There's a yeah. scene where a character, it might be Bradley Cooper. It might've been somebody else or Ryan Gosling. I can't remember which character it was, but they're looking at Ray Liotta and Ray Liotta's just giving him a look. And I remember thinking, this is why Ray Liotta is great. Cause he can tell you he's coming after your ass without saying a word. And uh, just great eyes, uh, great facial reactions. And I always like the stuff he's in. I mean, he's he's way over the top in Goodfellas at, at moments, and that's kind of been criticized as time has gone on. But I still think he's wonderful in that film. And uh, I think, he, I, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I, I like Ray Liotta quite a bit. Chaz I like too. Don't get me wrong, though. I like Chaz, man. I don't, I don't know if Chaz ever reached the heights of, what do you have? He had uh, Bronx Tale, and I think that Woody Allen film he did, Broad, Broad, Bullets Over Broadway. Yeah, because Usual Suspects, he's very much in a supporting role, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's always good. I mean, that's what he kind of is, and he's really good at that stuff. Oh, yeah. But, uh, man, his Sonny in Bronx Tale, just rewatching it this past week. Great performance. Great performance. It is, and it's a very charismatic performance. Yeah, so I'm going to go Ray Liotta. Nice. I'm going to agree with you. Uh, listen, I, I think it comes down to body of work. Uh, oddly, in a way, commentary is like Raul Julia or Jim Curry, where I don't know that necessarily he was always given the best platform to exhibit his wares. Um, so we're left with the Bronx Tale and a few others. But um, yeah, I got to go to Leota. He just, uh, man, he can turn it on. Um, Karen Black or Faye Dunaway? Oh, so you and I have talked about our love of Karen Black. Yes, we have. Over the years. Um, In saying that, I got to say, I have never been a big Faye Dunaway fan. Interesting. I I, I mean, don't get me wrong. She's in some very important films. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I do think I'll say this. I think she's beautiful. She is a beautiful lady. Yes. Um, you know, obviously, I love her in Bonnie and Clyde, and I love her in some other stuff. Chinatown, Chinatown Network. Uh, Mommy Dearest is a is a is a is a, it's a. I don't want to say this. I don't mean this in a bad way, but it it is what I mean when I say this. I think Mommy Dearest is a great bad film. Yes. Um, well, that hag exploitation. <laughs> yeah, you can call it that. Uh, it's it's just a great bad film. I, I don't. Uh, you know, I'm not going to sit here and badmouth it because uh, there's merits to it and stuff. And the one merit, though, that I will say is her performance is wow. It's over the top. I mean, it's it's one of the over the top performances. It really is. 
it is to female Hollywood over the top performance is what Ryan O'Neill's, um, yeah, Taylor, uh, <laughs> yeah, that normal, uh, well, uh, or uh, even, yeah, or even, uh, uh Pacino's Scarface performance. It reminds yeah. me of that too. Yes. Where it's, it's like the movie, the performance is so big. It dominates the movie itself. It's true. Um, which I've come around a bit more on Scarface. I still haven't rewatched it. I'm probably saving that for us to review some point, which I think we should at some point review. I that. think we should at some point. I, you know, you and I have our. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've it's been a long time since I watched it, so it'd be interesting to check it out. Maybe it'll happen this year. I don't know. Um, but I'm gonna go Karen Black because when I go back and look at the '70s, she is one of the most underrated of the '70s actresses that doesn't get enough love she is so good in everything she ever did she she really is i mean she but kind of like what we just talked about with uh you know joaquin phoenix and lady gaga i mean even if a film was a train wreck or a little segment of that trilogy of terror or whatever even if some of that stuff is is bad and and even some of the horror movies she did she was always good always good yes 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 i couldn't agree more i love dunaway but I watched something a few days ago that I'll mention next week. Um, and it just further cemented my love of Karen Black. I'm with you. I think you nailed it. I think she is absolutely one of the most criminally underappreciated actresses in Hollywood. Well, you know, when you think about 70s American actresses, I'm not sure that for a lot of people she's the first one that comes to mind. People in our circles, she probably would be to a degree because of her genre stuff. And she did a lot of genre stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, if I was just to look right now, cause my memory's dreadful. If I was to sit and write, go down right now and go, I'm going to give you 10 very good to great Karen black performances. I could do that quite easily, you know, and it's testament to her work. And it's just, it's criminal that she is not more well loved. Um, I, cause she is just a tremendous actress and I loved Faye Dunaway. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. Karen Black is it, man. This one, let me get this this or that out of the way before I forget because I don't usually have very many, if any. But I want to get this out there, and uh, you'll see where I'm going. But I'm going to go film score here. I'm going to go Escape from New York film score or Warriors film score. Ooh, man. <laughs> That's a good one. That is a very, very good one. But I'd like to think that this isn't emotional bias because I love Escape from New York, but it doesn't have the same or sort of occupy the same place in my heart that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Warriors does. But you'll hear me talk about this in the review, but I loved this score before I really had any sort of amateur armchair film criticism in me. Uh uh I love the score now that I look at films with a more critical eye. I think it's, it's an incredible propulsive just a fantastic score. Yeah, not to curb Lots the review. Away from the synth master, but... Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Barry well, Dvorzen out since the synth master in this one. Well, it's interesting. Barry Dvorzen has said that this is the first film with a rock and roll synth score. And, and he qualifies that with saying rock and roll synth score. And I, I'm glad he did because one of the first films I think of with synth are almost always... John Carpenter films then he's not I don't think he was the very first one but John Carpenter was certainly the one that brought that forward more yes and it became so much a part of what he was especially from Assault on Precinct 13 Halloween Escape from New York The Fog 
Um, and I, I, I feel like there's in the thing, but even though that's got Ennio Morricone, I think there's a little bit of Carpenter in there too. Yeah. Um, so. But uh, the thing doesn't really have that much. I mean, it's got a little bits and pieces, but it doesn't have as much score as most of his other films, but no, very spare. Yeah. But I remember escape from New York was a big one for me, yep. but I'm with you. I got to go this, this one, this one is, and I think the word propulsive is a good word. Yeah. This one this is the kind of score that tells you what the movie's going to be before the movie starts. Oh that, man, that, so that's what kind of score it is. It's it's that important to the movie. I agree, and there's so many things that are done well with that film, and I'll save it for the review. Like just through economy of sort of in precision of the people involved, like Dvorazin and Andrew Laszlo and stuff. But we'll get to that. We'll get yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, what I want to know is. And this is a very southern one. This came to me late last night. I was hungry. <laughs> I don't know how this one just came to me. These two things popped in my head. I, I said, this is going to be a this or that. Biscuits, fresh, hot, right of the oven. Biscuits or cornbread? No, oh, yeah, that is a very southern thing. Yeah. Those are southern staples. Oh, man. We like our carbs Ooh. with everything. But Before I forget, I'm gonna, I know you don't tend to go on Instagram too much. But this is there's a tie-in with biscuits and cornbread here. Do you remember you and I and Davey were talking about Yorkshire pudding last week? Yes, yes, yes. So I made something for Christmas breakfast, and it's called a savory Dutch baby. And it's a mix between a pancake and Yorkshire pudding. And it's very easy to make. Mm. I'm gonna send you the recipe through Instagram because that's where I found it. Okay. It, amazing i would love for you to make it and give us a review at some point yeah yeah i still get messages through instagram so if folks want to reach out to me through there i don't go on there much but i still do get messages there so you can always reach yeah you can always reach me on there i think i'm sammy ggtmc on there i think so yeah i don't go on there much um still kind of stick to facebook i'm one of those old fuddy duddies who just can't really jump around from service to service and just have stayed on facebook and then i've even gotten off facebook off and on over the years i just you know sometimes i i when I feel old is when I sit around going, man, I spend too much time on social media and, uh, I'll sometimes shut my account down for a while and stuff like that just to get away from it. But I'm always, I'm reachable. Trust me, folks. I'm reachable. Um, biscuits or cornbread. So will as a Southerner, I have to bring up, there's two different types of cornbread. There's cornbread and there's sweet cornbread. Oh, well then, look, like my southern cred card is out the window. <laughs> so sweet cornbread is obviously delicious, as you can imagine it would be. It's almost like cornbread cake. Um, but it, you know, it's kind of a deeper south thing, but uh, it, it is delicious. Uh, just, you know, higher sugar. I mean, I mean, you know, you add sugar to stuff. It's, it's it, you know, you could argue it's better in some ways most of the time. Um. So I will say I'm going to go um, barring sweet cornbread because it is the best of the three. I'm going to go, I'm going to go biscuits fresh out of the oven because man, if there's a food from my youth that I can't seem to escape, it's fucking biscuits and gravy. Oh God. And man, that shit is, it is calorie high. It is so good, though. It is so good. It is so good to pour hot gravy on hot biscuits. Uh, it, and a lot of people, you know, will get, you know, biscuits and they'll get, you know, they'll get jam or jelly and, you know, butter and stuff. That's all great. That's fine. I understand where you're coming from. But if I got hot biscuits, I want some hot gravy. And that's where I stand on biscuits. And, 
Yeah, I mean, but you know, we're, you're talking thousands of calories, and uh, you know, it's it's a great way to start the day, but it also makes me like pancakes, which is something else I love. It, if I eat too much of it, it can make me very lethargic. I had a lot of pancakes yesterday morning, <laughs> and you know, you're a much more active person than I am, but I got to say, pancakes, I love them, but I hardly ever eat them because I eat always eat too many or I eat too much. And then I always feel like shit for about an hour because I've carb loaded too much. And, you know, I don't really exercise regularly or anything like that. So I end up sitting down and like Thanksgiving dinner, I end up passing out. <laughs> oh, man, for sure. <laughs> so. For sure. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm going to go. There it is. There's the recipe. Hot off mm. the presses. Just sent my way. It's really good. It's really good. <laughs> Honestly, it turned out amazing. We did it with some bacon and eggs. It was it was a great Christmas Day breakfast, and it was very easy to make. You won't regret it. You won't regret it. You can make it for dinner even. It's very good. And it gives you at least a little sampling of Yorkshire pudding. Uh, I'm going to go cornbread, man. Um, I love both. Love both. There's This is truly one where there's no wrong answer. I love biscuits, putting some butter on them. Oh, man. Uh, but I got to go cornbread. And maybe it's because... I haven't had cornbread as much as I've had biscuits because they're obviously not a staple here. They've become, with barbecue culture kind of permeating everywhere, mm, they've mm-hmm, become yeah. more Southern culture by extension. There's been, uh, they're more available here, but man, I love cornbread. It's good. Uh, it's really good. Some people don't like cornbread at all. I understand, but it's sweet. Oh, sweet is better, but uh, preferable, but I can eat cornbread no matter what. It's yeah, a, yeah. It's a great adder. And one of the things I love to do with cornbread, it's a Southern thing, but I, I think a lot of people do it. Um, like with vegetable soup or something like that, or like beef stew, I just crumble the cornbread up into the soup. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's delicious. Delicious. That is good. Makes the That's soup that much more hearty. Oh, man. That does. <laughs> delightful. Um, <laughs> it does. Actually, I really I really want some beef stew or some vegetable soup right now. <laughs> time of year, man. Absolutely. It is. It is. Um, just a couple more. Okay. George Kennedy or Bo Hopkins? I feel like we had Kennedy on another one, but I don't know. Definitely wasn't Bo Hopkins. It was somebody else, though. Might have been George Kennedy, yeah. It might have been. This is a tough one because I love both of these guys for different reasons. But I think I'm going to go Hopkins because I don't think he gets the love that Kennedy gets. And I think, you know, we just talked about him not too long ago with uh, Nickel Ride, right? Yes, we did. And uh, I love Bo Hopkins. I think he had a natural charm and natural easygoing nature and honestly i think he i just think he was underrated i think kennedy had his had his moments and obviously he worked until he couldn't work anymore and i love george kennedy i I do i love him and everything he's ever done he's another one of them guys that bad movies it doesn't matter he's good i can't remember that one the one with the killer cats uninvited yeah (laughs) i only know that because my kids loved it when they we started the new bev and they were like they were they, they loved it yeah, I mean, he's good in the movie, and he he has no reason to be. Yeah. None. <laughs> and Blue Gulag, you're classing it up. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm going to go Hopkins. I don't think he gets enough love. Okay, so I completely agree with your statement. I I don't think Bo Hopkins gets enough love. And, again, he was in the same film I watched with Karen Black this past week that I'll talk about next week, and he's awesome. And, again, he just – yeah, he just – People don't think about him when they, when I if we were to say to most people, hey, 
tell me, tell me your favorite character actors from the sort of 60s and 70s. Bo Hopkins' name probably wouldn't be at the top of the list, but he should be in the conversation because he's. He, I don't remember seeing anything he's done where he's really shit the bed in. You know, he's great in the. He's in the Getaway. Was he in the Getaway? I feel like he was in the Getaway. I think he's in the Getaway. Yeah. Anyway, he's he's always good. He's always very good. Always. But but I just can't get I just can't get away from this kind of awesome dad charm that George Kennedy has. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what it. I just you know. And again, another guy that, like you said. He did some terrible films, but by and large, he was pretty good in them. And I can't remember the name of it right now, but there's a really fun, it's almost like, um, uh, real Bravo kind of like biker trash action, action film where he's in it and he's given a lot more kind of heft than usual. And I saw it, it's on the, it's on Arrow's streaming service. Oh, something at dawn or, oh, um, Oh, shit. Um, oh, is it? No, it's not just after dawn, is it? No, it's the other one. Uh, Doomsday at dawn? Doom? Savage dawn. Savage dawn. Okay. I feel like he yep. did a, yeah, Bo Hopkins was in a dawn. Oh, no, that was Nightmare at Noon or something like dawn that. Noon. <laughs> Doomsday <laughs> at dawn, Nightmare at Noon, you know. <laughs> Oddly enough, so here's the thing. I watched Savage Dawn like last year and I'd seen it before, but I, I watched it. Uh, this past year I had I don't know it was weird I had a Sunday where I had like nothing but time speaking of Karen Black she's in it so Savage Dawn if people haven't seen it it is amazing and I'd love to re- I in fact I want to review it on the show because it's got George Kennedy Richard Lynch Karen Black Lance Henriksen William Forsyth um, it's really good and it's really fun and it's got some pretty good action in it like it's it should be more well regarded yeah yeah, yeah, I like I like that film as well. By the way, yeah, yeah, oh, it's good, man. It's good. We get a blonde Lance Henriksen in it. It's pretty yes. amazing. Yeah, that that is amazing. Uh, okay, so one final one: The Sentinel or Rosemary's Baby? So on on paper, this is easy to pick, right? Uh, you would think immediately where I'm going to go because I'm a film lover, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm going to throw a curveball at you and say I like The Sentinel more than I like Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. And the reason why is because the Sentinel is so WTF. (laughs) At some point, it just goes off the rails. And thank God for that. Now, I'm not saying Rosemary's Baby doesn't. (laughs) And Rosemary's Baby is a great film. It is. I've I've always been kind of drowned a little bit, though. Uh, I find Mia Farrow, she's a bit too waifish and pixie-ish for me. I agree with you. Yeah. And just, I don't know. Uh, I do like John Cassavetes quite a bit in the film. Obviously, Roman Polanski, uh, you know, regardless of his reputation, uh, a master filmmaker. Yeah, uh, I do understand. You know, don't get me wrong. Don't for those no, who are we're listening. Talking about this film. We're talking about yeah, this film. I'm not talking, talking about. about his- yeah, I'm not talking about his personal life. No. Um, obviously, he knows what to do, and he knew what to do then. And it's definitely the better made of the two, but rewatchability. I think the Sentinel is more rewatchable than Rosemary for me. Sammy baby, <laughs> you know where I'm falling on this. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. I just had this conversation with someone the other night. Coincidentally, that same film that had Bo Hopkins and Karen Black in it had a really great Burgess Meredith performance. And 
I had said to someone, I said to the guys, I said, hey, have you guys seen the Sentinel? And one guy had, one guy had, and I said, oh man, you gotta see the Sentinel. Because I always, I always compare those two films because those two films to me feel, feel very similar, and I just feel like the Sentinel never gets enough love. It's like, it's like the Solange Knowles to Rosemary Baby's Beyonce. Yeah. And it deserves <laughs> yeah, so much more love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you can actually throw the tenant in there in a weird way too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Uh, hotel horror or something, or, or big building horror, or some of some, or just build, big building. You know what the fuckery? I mean, it's just yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. Or even uh, um, uh, Inferno. You could throw in that mix too. Oh, really? Really good, man. That's a fucked up building. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a you know a whole genre of itself. Fucked up building uh, films. You know. Yeah, but, for sure. So you know, definitely uh, in there. Uh, yeah, we should do that. I've actually uh, meant to pick the Sentinel several times over the years. I just haven't because some so many people have covered it over the years. So maybe maybe that's another one that we'll get through this year. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a fun one for sure. Or maybe uh-huh. even Rosemary's Baby. Who knows? We never talked about that one either. No, exactly. All right, you know what? That's all I got, man. All right. Sounds good. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back, and finally, we're going to discuss the Warriors from 79. We'll be back right after this. ever a theme that gets you pumped i got chills man i've heard that a million times it's amazing every time i hear it i just reminded how amazing it is so good so good so good i mean that this it takes you to a time and place too really if you if you have uh an emotional connection to this film so which i believe we might have so we are going to get into this long time coming uh we've talked about it over the years certainly and uh, it's time we, I think it's time we tackle it. Arrow just put this out on 4K and a Blu-ray set. Uh, I will talk about my recommendations for that. But this is The Warriors from 1979, that glorious year. Uh, a street gang known as The Warriors must fight their way from the Bronx to their home turf on Coney Island, where they are falsely accused of assassinating a respected gang leader. Now, we should get this out of the way right off the top. This film is based on... The film and the story, the original novel, which actually I listened to the novel. It's free on uh, if you're an Audible uh, a member um, on Amazon. It's it's free to listen to. And uh, the book is the book is something else. Let me tell you, Randy told me to listen to the book because he was listening to it. Our good friend Randy, and man, it's 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 messed up. This if, is all your one. <laughs> yeah, if you yeah. made if you made this film on the book. It would be rated X. I mean, it was. It's really messed up. 
I so, got to listen to it, man. <laughs> oh, it's it's messed up, man. It's messed up. I'll tell you how messed up it is. Ajax in the book is known, his character is called Lunkhead. And oh. Lunkhead is, man, I know James Remar plays a bit of a scumbag in this. Yeah. But Lunkhead is beyond a scumbag. <laughs> really? As a matter of fact, all the warriors in the book are... Oh, it's, it's, it's pretty gross, but I mean, it's entertaining. It's definitely a moment in time. Uh, but anyway, I want to get this out of the way. It's based loosely, but kind of poetically on Anabas- Anabasis, 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 yeah. Yeah, which is written by the Greek soldier and uh, uh, a poet or whatever he was, uh, Xenophon. Uh, this is just fun to start talk. This stuff sounds like stuff out of a post-apocalyptic movie. And uh, which is fitting because the movie feels like that in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, that's essentially about uh, a character named Cyrus who wanted to take over the throne uh, from Artaxerxes II in 401 BC in Persia. Uh, the, uh, Cyrus, Cyrus the Younger, it's a, the, an army of 10,000 was hired by Cyrus the Younger to take over this throne in Persia. And then they kind of get trapped behind enemy lines and they got to make their way back. So it's kind of based on that, and Walter Hill kind of ran with that, and uh, as he is known to do. Uh, I just want to also get this out of the way before we start talking about the cast. Walter Hill, uh, an asthmatic child, kind of like um, Martin Scorsese. So he spent a lot of time reading uh, growing up, uh, comics, uh, novels, watching movies and stuff, which is why I think he has a, a natural knack for storytelling um, because he spent a lot of time indoors as a youth. You know, nowadays, being asthmatic, you can get out more. But back in the 50s and 60s and uh, late 40s, wasn't as easy. And you, a lot of times, you ended up staying at home quite a bit. Um, so, you know, he loved those things. Um, I'm going to talk about the cast a little bit. Michael Beck showing up here uh, as Swan. Uh, we'll talk more about these people as we go. James Remar uh, as Ajax. Dorsey Wright as Cleon. Brian Tyler as Snow. David Harris as Cochise. Probably one of the more memorable-looking characters in the film. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Tom McKittrick as Cowboy, which, uh, fun piece of trivia, Robert De Niro was offered that part and almost took it. Yeah. <laughs> almost took <Yeah>. it. <laughs> wow. Would have been a different movie, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, Marcelino Sanchez plays Rembrandt. Uh, if you don't know who Marcelino uh, my generation probably remembers Marcelino Sanchez as one of the Bloodhound Gang. Not the yeah. not the rap goofy group, but the uh, the uh, the original 321 Contact or one, two, yep. three contact. I can't remember the name of the show, but uh, there's a bloodhound gang on there. And he was one of the ones in that Terry Michos is vermin who has this constant look of, I got to take a dump on his face. Yeah. Super. He's like the goofy, super fun. It's, it's a different role than a lot of the other yeah. characters. He's kind of a comic relief. I can't remember who was offered that role. Someone, Oh, Tony Danza was offered that role. Oh, and yeah. And he, he totally reminds me of Tony Danza. Yeah, he was. It was supposed to be Tony Danza, but Taxi came up and he signed on and he said, "I'd, I'd love to, but yeah, got this little show." Yeah, Can you imagine De Niro and Danza in this man? Oh, I would have loved it. I would. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I had my feelings about the film anyway, but man, can you imagine? <laughs> Lord, but, but it is Terry Mitros is totally giving off that Danza energy in this. Yeah. Uh Deborah Van Valkenburg. This is her first film, but she was on TV when I was a kid. Uh, I can't remember the name of the show. It was a Ted Knight show. Oh, really? Yeah. I can't, man, I can't remember the name of the show now off the top of my head. That's a shame. 
I ran for a while. Uh, it was Ted Knight and James, uh, Jim Bullard and uh, Deborah. Oh, too close for comfort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. That's it. I was going to say that jokingly, but yeah, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that show. Yeah, yeah. She was on Subtle the- acting from Jim J. Bullard. <laughs> Why did he put J.M. instead of just J.I.M.? That'd be difficult. Yeah. I like Jim Bullock, though. I always liked him quite a bit. Uh, Roger Hill is Cyrus, who is in the film briefly, but he has a very memorable moment. Very iconic. Iconic is the great word to put it. David Patrick Kelly, and probably the film that made him, yeah. and honestly, one of my favorite character actors. Uh, you just, oh. uh, yeah. And Walter Hill uses him great in this, uses him great in 48 oh. Hours. He's uh, memorable in Commando with Schwarzenegger. How about Sam the Sleazebag, Ford Fairlane? Mm. Sam the Sleazebag. How about his uh, Jailbird uh, appearance in uh, 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 Adam Sandler's remake of The Longest Yard? Yeah, that's right. He's a great <laughs> New York character actor. Really is. One of the greats. Uh, oh, we could go on and on about his resume, man. He's oh, we awesome. Could. Yeah, he's in a ton of stuff. Uh, Lynn Thigpen, you see her lips more than you see anything else. We've talked about this before. She's known for stuff like uh, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, yeah. the TV show, but uh, great actress, um, the DJ, kind of the narrator of the film, and uh, Mercedes Rule in an uh, early appearance uh, as a policewoman in this film. Yeah, I think. James I Re- award winning. Yeah, we should say James Remar's Kryptonite. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Hey, lady. Yeah. Hey, lady. Yeah. You okay, lady? Um, I also want to bring up uh, Tom Waits, uh, Thomas Waits. Now, Thomas Waits plays Fox. And I just want to bring this up so we can get this out of the way. But Fox was the second lead. And really, in a lot of ways, I think when Hill was making the film, the the original thing was to kind of go with Fox's character more. He's supposed to tie up with Van Falkenberg's uh, character and everything, but evidently Waits and Hill could not get along. No, not at all. And uh, they just, it's just one of those things. Their agent couldn't get along with the production and Waits and Hill could not get along. They were incredibly difficult with each other. It was uncomfortable for everybody. So Walter Hill in true seventies film fashion, just killed his character off to get him off the set. <laughs> and a pretty and a pretty well edited uh, <laughs> kill, you know, to get rid of him. But it's and yeah, this is Waits. If if you don't know his name, you know his face. He's Windows in. Um, yeah, that's probably what he's thing. most known for. Yeah, in our circles. And and let's shout out. You won't recognize him. And I don't know. I'm sure most people know this, but let's shout out GGTMC favorite <laughs> Steve James as a baseball fury. Yeah. So. You know, I've always tried to, I, I think I identified him this time, uh, yeah. but uh, I, I'm pretty sure I did. But there's also rumors that Robert Townsend, of all people, is a baseball fury. I have no idea if that's true. Um, but I do think I did see Steve James this time. I went back and actually looked. And I think he might be the second or third close-up of a baseball fury. He's younger and maybe not as bulky. Mm-hmm. But maybe he is. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Anyway, we'll talk about that sequence here in a bit. But I also want to mention in really, really true GGTMC fashion, stunts on this film done by Craig Baxley. Heck yeah. And Craig Baxley is actually in one of the gangs, the punk gang in the subway. 
Which I think is the most underrated gang in the film, by the for the record, and, and fittingly probably the best choreographed fight scene. Really is. Um, even though I love the baseball fury scene, <laughs> there are moments if you go back and look at it where one fury is waiting while the other fury gets his ass kicked to I run up to the other guy. <laughs> a classic move, right? Classic heel move to just get jumped when you're just staring at the fight. <laughs> Idiots, yeah. you learn nothing. Yes, but. Um, He's actually one of the punks uh, as well, and he does the majority of the stunts in the film. Uh, he did the Cyrus fall and, and stuff like that. But if you guys don't know who Craig Baxley is, he has the one, two, three punch of Stone Cold, I Come in Peace, and Action Jackson as a director, and yeah. will forever hold a place in our hearts for the director of Stone Cold. I mean, he'll always be there for that. And uh, honestly, one of the most underrated action directors Hollywood ever had. Agreed. It's it's criminal, criminal that he didn't get more of an opportunity. I know. I know. I don't. uh, It just it it boggles my mind. It really does. Yeah. All right. So that's some history behind the film. This is a review a long time coming. Uh, You guys know probably how we feel about this film. Even if you don't and listen to the show and you probably listen to this for the first time, you can probably kind of tell. Yeah. But we're going to try to tackle this as uh, critically as possible. And be as honest as possible. Will, what did you think? I know you rewatched this not too long ago. It's in the month, yeah. 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 And um, it just, you know, the timing just was what it was. That's and okay. I thought we got to kick off 2024 with a bang, a real mm-hmm. banger. And this, to me, is the definition of a banger. And honestly, one of the definitive films of the creation of our little podcast. 100%. What did you think on your rewatch of The Warriors? So let me get a few things out of the way. You've kind of disclosed sort of the emotional vantage point uh, for both of us. And I will try to not allow it to color my critical eye. I don't know how much I can separate that. But I also feel fairly good about my critical eye because it's a very well-made film. Yeah, yeah. I trust your judgment on this. Right? Like, look at the people you named. Never mind Andrew Laszlo as the DOP. Yeah, I didn't even get into the real details. Yeah, there's more stuff to talk about. Barry Dvorzin doing the score, which you heard the opening if you haven't seen. Um, Hill, of course, his pedigree speaks for itself. Uh, um, but even when you look at right down the line here, produced by Lawrence Gordon, Frank Marshall, Joel Silver. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, just wow. Um, this, this film, the pedigree up and down this film is is first rate uh right down to wardrobe william loger did the uh the wardrobe a kitman ho did like uh scouting location you know it just it's filled top to bottom with really great people so i feel pretty good about the fact that although i talk about this film and i cannot separate sort of the rose-colored the maasai aviators rose-colored aviators uh, when I look at it through a critical lens, I, I feel pretty good about it. So uh, this film, when I think about it, I've seen this film more than any other film in my life. You think so? You think this is I, the I, one you've seen the most? I do. I do. Because, you know, for a while it was like the, the three that I'd probably seen the most were like this, The Last Dragon, and Return of the Living Dead. And I'd seen them all roughly within a few years of each other. All three, know, all three, All three bangers. No and now, coincidentally, we've covered all three on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, you can't go wrong with any one of those three. I would say that this film, it, it's it's got to be in the top three films I've seen the most. 
Oh, wow. So it's also the volumes there for you as well. Yeah, the volume is there. Uh, <clears throat> fun story about this film. I didn't see it in theaters. Uh, my mom and dad were not interested in this. So and I would have been old enough and, and everything. But I think, you know, uh, they just never went to see this one. I did see 48 hours in theaters, oddly, which was an interesting experience. But um, the uh, the fun thing about this was when we first got cable TV, um, yeah. obviously that was, you know, that was like literally Pandora's box, right? I have these great fond memories of cable television. And some of the films I would watch the most, um, Little Darlings, um, uh, there were several Matt Dillon films, The Outsiders, obviously. Um, all, all, all the stuff that I really am tied to emotionally and the Warriors was one, but I got to be honest with you. So this is a weird thing to admit, but th- this is the truth. When I saw the preview for the Warriors, remember how on earlier premium channels, they would just kind of show trailers for films in between films they would show. Uh, that was the very early years of cable. They would show this trailer for the Warriors and then tell you what time it was coming on. Cause this is really before TV guide really kind of picked up cable and everything else. Or you get these little movie books with your cable TV subscription. They would show this trailer, and I was terrified of the Baseball Furies as a kid. I really had a problem with ki- with people with makeup on when I was a kid. Clowns, uh, Baseball Furies, just anybody. Um, Gary Busey and uh, uh, the oh, film we did. Carney. Yeah, just disturbing as all hell. Uh, I really just, and to this day, I still think clown makeup and grease paint makeup is still some of the most disturbing stuff you can do. And it's, it still bothers me to no end. Uh, that Dennis Christopher film fade to black. I think it's called. He, oh he yes. It. Yes. There's all kinds of films like this, but the baseball furies, I mean, obviously as an older man and somebody who's seen the warriors a thousand times now, it's not that it's terrifying. I think that what it is, is it's, it just, it alters the face just enough to bother you. Yeah. And, they terrified me as a kid, so I wouldn't watch it. But one day I said, you know what? It was during the day about, you know, time like this early in the morning, I got up and this is back before they, when they would show rated R films early in the morning on cable, they eventually stopped doing that when they realized kids were watching these movies early in the morning. Uh, I got up and it was like a Saturday or a Sunday and the warriors was on. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to face my fears. I'm going to watch it. And I watched it and I fell in love with the warriors and my love affair has been there for, you know, since I was, I don't know, nine, eight or nine or 10 years old. And, uh, yeah. So that's my, that's my little history with the Warriors. I don't know how you came upon it. Yeah. The first so this, time. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> pretty similar. This, uh, I remember the first time I saw this film. So this is like 33 years ago, man. We're going back 33, 34 years ago. Um, summertime, hot, like midnight, one in the morning, and for those of our younger listeners, if we have any of those, um, <laughs> this was a time before all the digital stuff, right? So yeah, it was luck of the draw with what you'd get on cable. So one night, my brother and I, we were sleeping and like we had like a pullout couch, right? Like one of those like plaid ones. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was hot in the summer and, you know, we'd want to stay up late and watch movies and and I, I turned it on just, and this is just one of those funny things in life. I mean, this is fairly, I guess, insignificant in the grand scheme of life. But in terms of things you love, what a, the timing's everything. I just happened to turn the TV on right, or turn the channel on right at the moment when the Wonder Wheel's on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about that? And right then, and right at the beginning of the film. And 
I didn't know what this was. I, I couldn't refer to like a Danny Perry book or the internet. And, uh, and I'm watching it and it, it's cutting to these, these guys and they're talking and the film gets going and, uh, the subway and it's got this like spray paint font. And it's funny because as much as I've seen this film the most in my life, it feels like I even have sort of the most memorabilia, uh, of this film, and I don't have a lot. I don't I tend to have a lot of memorabilia, you know. But I've dressed as a baseball fury for Halloween. <laughs> uh, I have my dad got me the Warriors vest one year for my birthday. <laughs> there you go. I have that original, not like a, not an original, but like a like the original poster for the film, like the white with like the white border. Uh, I have the poster. I played the PS2 game front to back when it came out. Yeah, and you're and you're not a big video gamer, right? So, oh no, I played it front to back. I was just I couldn't believe that my good fortune that Rockstar put out a Warriors game. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's a great game too. It is a fun game, very fun. Um, so, I mean, this this is a film that I just I have a deep. My kids love it. My kids have seen it at, at the review here in Toronto. Um, I, I adore this film. So, you know, that being said, I, every time I watch it. You know, because we've talked about the people behind the scenes now. Every time I watch this film, and I don't know if you feel this way, Sammy, but I'm always blown away that it's only like a 90-minute film. So, yeah, rewatching it this time, I think that's one of the that's one of the strengths of this movie. I know we talk about that all the time, about long films and everything else, but this is a great example of what Walter Hill does. I think Walter Hill, I don't think he gets enough credit for stripping films and narratives down to their basics. He he tells the story as is. I don't feel like his films ever have a lot of fluff. And nope. I think that's what makes him a great genre filmmaker. I, I think all of his greatest films, Streets of Fire, The Driver, this film, 48 Hours even, um, uh, The Long Riders is a little long. I'm trying to think of some other stuff that, you know, he's done. I just think, and Crossroads is one of my favorites. Uh, I think he just takes films down to the bare minimum. He takes narrative down to the bare minimum. And I think that bothers some people because some people have complained about his character development and things like that in his films. I don't think that's important. I think he's as pure a genre filmmaker as they come. And I think that's his strength. I think that's what Walter Hill does really, really well is he takes films, takes them right down to their bare bones and moves the story forward uh doing that and honestly i don't think he gets enough credit for that i don't think he gets enough credit for um taking films and just stripping them down to the bare bones necessities i think about a movie like trespass that he did in 92 which is underrated and he just took it down to the bare minimum guys end up in a in a, a rough part of town and you know they they have this money situation and he just takes it down to the bare minimum. Extreme prejudice, bare minimum. Very simple story, right? And we've talked about a few of his films on the show. Southern Comfort, Extreme uh, uh, Prejudice. Extreme Prejudice. I think those are the only two we've done. Do we ever do, and I, I'm sure we've had this conversation, we never did Hard Times, did we? No, we've never done Hard Times. Ever? No, which is honestly one of the great Charles Bronson performances. It, it, as far as actual performances, I think it might, yeah. might be yeah. the best performance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he took, like Leone, he took the strengths of Charles Bronson and stuck to them. Except he that he actually talks in the film as opposed to Once Upon a Time in the West. He doesn't talk that much. But nobody used Bronson 
as well. I mean, Michael Winter used Bronson great and and created the Bronson genre. Yeah, he did. But I think Walter Hill and Sergio Leone got Charles Bronson. Yeah, more than any other directors, they understood what he was about. So that was exactly the word I was about to use. They understood him and how to use him. Yes, yes. But um, yeah, that, I just I think he just takes films down to the to the to the base need. And I think he gets criticized for that, but I don't think people understand how hard that is to do. Well, here's the thing. I'm not a filmmaker. You're not a filmmaker, but we, we love film. And to do that, to separate yourself emotionally from a lot of things that maybe you you feel married to as far as the film, Walter Hill understands that. And to distill things right down to what they need to be to be propulsive and um, to sort of give you a thumbnail sketch of, sketch of characters and motivations. That economy of storytelling serves him well because he tends to work in a genre, if we're going to sort of say action as a wide net. All of his films are very masculine. Yes, yes. Right? That obviously grew up watching and loving samurai films and westerns. Mm-hmm. Very masculine traditionally, very masculine genres. Deals with a lot of male characters. In fact, I mean, Deborah Van Valkenburg aside, a lot of time I don't I can't think of any characters that are featured in his films off the top of my head as sort of female leads. And that's certainly not a criticism of him. It's an observation. Um, uh, maybe maybe Ellen Barkin a bit and Johnny Handsome. Oh, you know what? I've actually never seen Johnny Handsome. Oh, yeah. We got we to gotta talk Johnny Handsome someday. That's Mickey Rourke, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's underrated. Yeah, I've always meant to see that one. And I've never seen Oddly Crossroads. I was a big Macho guy growing up. And oh, just yeah. You got to see you got to see Crossroads. Bits and pieces. Like, you know, but, yeah. you know, I've always wanted to see it. So that seems, yeah, I got to get that one yep. watched this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, he has this economy of storytelling. It, it keeps things propulsive. And to separate yourself from the things that you've um, become married to as far as making the film in service of making a better propulsive film and just keeping enough meat on the bone without flab is a is a hard thing to do. Because yes. some filmmakers, like you look at Michael Cimino or some filmmakers that are very talented, but they just they can't let go of anything. And even some people accuse Tarantino of that since Sally Menke left, just they can't let go of ever, of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, filmmakers can fall in love with themselves, certainly. And then, of course, they can fall in love with the power. <clears throat> not the power, I shouldn't say that, but with wanting to tell the story they want to tell. Um, And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I mean, it leads to better or worse in some scenarios, mm-hmm. but it can be a bit messy. And it's... Walter Hill, I mean, again, he doesn't hit it out of the park every time, but I just think that pound for pound, because you could say the same thing about Martin Scorsese. I mean, his last, what, three or four films have been almost, one of them is three hours. Yeah. But almost all of them have been almost close to three hours. So you could say the same thing about, you know, Martin Scorsese. He's trying to get as, it seems like he's trying to get as much on film as he can before he passes away or something. Uh, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I mean, I'm, I'm being honest. It just seems to me like he's trying to get as much out there as he can. Um, but Hill's never felt that way. He, no. To me, he's of the American filmmakers of the 70s. The only one I can compare him to genre wise and purity wise is John Carpenter. He, uh, yeah, I knew you were going to say Carpenter. That felt very parallel to me. Well, 
Honestly, I think Walter Hill and John Carpenter are the two great filmmakers of the 70s that never get talked about. Uh, yeah. Well, no, I, let me rephrase that. They do get talked about, but they never get talked about as the quote-unquote movie brats. Like no. the Spielbergs, De Palmas, Scorsese's, George Lucas. All those guys are great. But while those guys were making De Palma, you know, all those guys were making great films, John Carpenter and Walter Hill were also making great films. And they were considered B-movies, but their movies are timeless. I'm telling you, some of the most timeless movies I've ever seen are from those two guys. Oh, for sure. And easily, when we talk top 10 filmmakers for me, Hill and Carpenter are in that conversation every time. Yep. Every single time. I will never remove them from my top 10. I agree. Uh, They're just, you know, I could talk about their films till I'm blue in the face. No, I agree. I completely agree. And and listen, you know, Carpenter's another guy, and correct me if I'm wrong, this could just be memory or memory failing me, but he's another guy that tends to keep things pretty lean and mean, like 100 minutes, yeah. 90 minutes. Yeah. You know, and again, these guys grew up in that era when, you know, the Westerns and the, the Howard Hawks films they grew up with and stuff, they weren't, although I'm sure they were fans of the kind of operatic Westerns, uh, that were longer. This isn't what kind of informed their filmmaking necessarily, right? So right. Uh, they keep things tight, man. And it's it's definitely in service to the film. You know, this film opens up with that, the, the credits through the subway. And to me, that's very symbolic of the film itself. It's just got this constant thrust. And like I said, I'm always, wow, there's only 90 minutes? This isn't like 140 minutes? I mean, 130 minutes? You know, because so much happens mm-hmm. and nothing feels rushed. Nothing. To be able to balance that where it's propulsive, you get to know these characters, you kind of get to know he's the goofy one, he's the hard ass. Yeah. He's the one that's, you know, uh, kind of cool and a little different. Like, it just, he gives them all enough of a sketch, which he always does. And he always, a lot of his films are these kind of guys on a mission films. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like Extreme Prejudice. Uh, well, it's more of a man on several, but uh, kind of a wild bunch riff, right? Wild I mean, bunch riff, yeah. right? So it just—he's always done that well. Um, another thing I want to talk about with this film is a lot is always said in our circles about how Dirty Harry and Death Wish informed Italian genre filmmaking in the '80s, but not enough is said about <laughs> aesthetically. Oh man, stylistically, how much this film informed people if especially you, people like enzo castellari who we love oh man if you take first of all there are some straight riffs on the warriors from italia from italy no doubt from italian huh. film italia you're uh, right you're wrong <laughs> yeah 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 uh said it wrong but i'm not completely wrong no you said it right actually <laughs> I, that was the exact right way to say it <laughs> the um when i think about italy sometimes in the 80s i think about two things the warriors and Mad Max. Oh, that's the other one. So that that's sort of the four <laughs> the four horsemen. Yeah, it's you, Mad Max, Warriors, Death Wish, and Dirty Harry. Yeah, so you put them all in a bowl and mix them up. Yeah, and you have Italian cinema in the eighties. <laughs> that's it, man. That is exactly it. And and hey, let's let's give Criterion their flowers. I never thought I'd see the day coming tomorrow, January first, or when you're listening to this, it'll already be out. Enzo Castellari on the Criterion Channel. They got like. The Bronx Warriors. There we go. All of his, all of his like post-apocalyptic films are on there now. 
<laughs> on the Criterion channel. Dude, it's 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 the apocalypse. It's actually yeah. happening. <laughs> it's amazing. And another thing, talking about influence, this film is so influential in hip-hop culture. Yes. Yeah, I'd say the two most influential films in hip-hop culture arguably are this and Scarface. For sure. And then you get like The Last Dragon and... Yeah, you, you get know, Last Dragon so, in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I think it's fight music is the... I'm not a huge Eminem guy, but, you know... I guess I if you it. want... Yeah, if you want to mix in Five Deadly Venoms, maybe, oh, but yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's kind of more tied to the Wu-Tang Clan. Island, but, yeah. Um, it's kind of... That, that one's more directly tied to one group, but I'd say that that martial arts film in particular, it, 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 it hits some... It definitely hits some spots in the early hip-hop era. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. But this film by and large is a very urban film. And I know, it, you know, it's undeniable. It's influence on hip hop culture. And like you said, Scarface, of course, too. But this film, I know that Walter wanted to make the cast uh, like sort of a black and, and his and sort of Hispanic cast. The studio kind of bristled. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but he wanted to make uh, Mercy a Puerto Rican character, which would have been very interesting. Van Valkenburg is great in the film, but it would have been very interesting to see. I don't know uh, what her uh, lineage is, but she strikes me as somewhat Puerto Rican. I, I, I hate to say that dark, because now she's right. Yeah. Skin's fair. Yeah. I hate she's, to say that because I know nowadays you say something like that and you're like, oh, you're, you're profiling. But she does have that Puerto Rican feel, does she not? Well, I think she was probably cast for that with the dark hair, right? Because if he, if he wasn't going to get a Puerto Rican actress, uh, then he wanted to cast someone with some dark features and so for maybe Italian looking or... Yeah, doesn't you know, really... Say. She says she's from Schenectady. So she's a New York girl. Yeah. Um, but uh, this film, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of controversy, man. A lot of fights, a lot of brawls. This film, and we won't go too much into it because we have to talk about the film proper... Which again, uh, 4K release has been very well regarded around the internets. Oh yeah, people that uh, I mean, just kudos to Arrow. But um, production was wild. Like there was gangs involved. There's like big gangs. There's actual gangs in like the big conclave scene with Cyrus. They had the gangs protecting their equipment. I mean, it just this was a very urban film. Very ahead of its time. Can I say this? I want to get this up because I'd read this in the trivia. The trivia on IMDb is fascinating. Uh, and there's a ton of it. <laughs> there's a ton of it. Can you believe that he wanted to put this, uh, like a gay gang in there called the Doberman Pinchers? They were all going to be blonde and Kevin Bacon was going to be one of them. They were like an S&M gay gang he was going to put in the film. Yeah, he was going to go. I, I mean, he was. I don't think Walter Hill gets enough credit for being kind of ahead of his time. Oh, let's yeah, let's talk about that because that's a great point. He he wanted this film. He wanted the gang to be African American. Yeah, African American and sort of black, uh, Puerto Rican or Hispanic. Yeah, he wanted minorities, and obviously he got overturned because of and was able to mix the gang, which is yeah. honestly that's progressive enough, <laughs> big time. Uh, because you have white and black kids working together, and there's no and Hispanic kids. Yeah, yeah, there's no. There's no the only derogatory comments amongst the gang are homosexual comments. Unfortunately, that hasn't aged well, obviously. And those almost all come from James Remar's character. There, James Remar is sort of the the hyper masculine. Uh, yeah, he has not aged well as a character. He, and I'm, it's yeah. funny as a kid, he was my favorite because he was so macho. But you know, when I got to be an adult or even a teenager, I'm watching with that. Ooh. Yeah, it's it's a I little overly cruel, right? I mean, it's just. I, yeah. But again, you know, I grew up during this era, 
that was pretty common behavior amongst yep. masculine older teenagers that I hung around. Yeah, this posturing kind yeah. of. And I would be remiss if I sat here and told you that I didn't have some fault to play in that. I would say stuff like that. Not sensibilities change for the better. Yeah, you just you you say stuff like that because you're a kid and you don't understand what you're saying, you don't understand what you're doing. And then you meet friends and you grow as a person and you realize that that stuff's just it's just not called for. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, it's it's ugly, but it, you know, it's again side of the times, but it, I I'm glad you brought up Hill being progressive because much like Carpenter um or Romero you know, a lot of genre filmmakers, they were very progressive and very inclusive and diverse in their casting. And I love that this film is very seamlessly multicultural. Um, and there's not really much talk about race. It, it's really inconsequential. It really <laughs> is. Really, it, Honestly, they really don't address race at all. The, the When they have the big meat, all uh, all shapes and sizes and colors are all there together. Including Asian gangs and oversized fedoras. Yeah. Now, there is some, yeah, there are some moments where, you know, the, you could argue that there are some broad statements in costuming. Well, yes. There, so this, we haven't really said this. I'm sure, I think we're assuming that most of our audience has seen the film, but some of the, this is very, it's a very alternate kind of, they, I think some cuts of the film say somewhere in the future or sometime in the future. So it's kind of this weird alternate dimension where like there's a gang of tough street mimes and the baseball furies are kind of mimey and we're willing to <laughs> just roll with it, I guess. Yeah. There's uh, some African-American gangs that dress like pimps. There's at least one that dresses, they dress like a stereotypical pimp, the purple satin vest. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's uh, a gang of ball headed guys that could be perceived as skinheads, although I don't think they are because they make, he mixes that gang too. The, yeah. The Turnbull ACs, he, he mixes that gang as well, which I think is very important. But that one feels, for me, pound for pound, that one feels the most post-apocalyptic yes. uh, because they're in the big bus and everything. And I like that. That sequence is really good. That's a great sequence. And the orphans feel that way, too. They feel kind of post-apocalyptic, dirty and, and lost. and Just on the fringes of society. Yeah. They're so low, they don't even register. That's right, man. Um, but there's these – there are some moments, some of the Asian stuff was – you know, it's 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 a you know if you look at it on the surface, yeah, it's a little. I don't think it does it as bad. And and don't get me wrong, because we covered this film, I don't think it's as broad as the Wanderers was. The Wanderers really kind of hit on this kind of stuff too: Asian gangs and black gangs and whatnot. And uh, it kind of hits stereotypes a little harder, I think, than this one does. I think Hill does a good job of making the gang itself the stereotype as opposed to the ethnic uh, background of the characters, right? I think he does a better job there. No, I agree 100%. Um, you know, one thing this film does well, I think, and it kind of runs hand in hand with the runtime and economy of the filmmaking is the montages aren't just montage for montage sake. Like the opening sets up the meeting, sets up the gang, um, and I love that it, it kind of cuts in between. Hey, what do you know about Cyrus? Yeah. What's up with this meeting? And uh, I love that. What do you know about Cyrus? That line. And uh, Cochise says magic. A whole lot of magic. Man, that is economical filmmaking at its best. Like he's 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 giving you an intro. He's telling you the prologue. 
He's giving you great music, great cuts, great filmmaking. He's introducing you to characters, all building up to this great Cyrus scene. And it establishes the whole movie in like 10 or 15 minutes. Oh, big time. It's amazing. Again, I don't think it's talked about well enough. I mean, it's master filmmaking. Yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is. It's, uh, it's, sorry, give me one sec. No, no problem. I'll, I'll glamorize here a little bit and just say more about that intro, but the way he shoots it too, it's almost like, almost like a, like a fancy commercial or something. Like, you know, you got one character looking one way, another one at a profile. It's a very European cinema in that way. And I think that that's what he was going for, but it's amazing the way he sets it up to tell the story and set up the whole precipice of the film and how it's going to go. Yeah. And that's the other thing about the movie. I mean, the movie, it, for me, this film always feels like it's on the edge of the cliff. Like it, it starts out that way and it never lets up until the last song plays. Agreed. It just, it, it just makes you feel like you're on the edge of your seat the entire time. I, I, I don't, I can't think of a movie. I can think of some movies, I can't think of a movie that nails that more than the Warriors. For no, me. Agree. Yeah. No, I agree. It's a breathless film, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a breathless film. Um, so this Cyrus, I don't think we're, we're saying too much. It's kind of right in the opening of the film. I love the setup. I think it's a wonderful setup for a film. And we should say, like, there's been so many whispers about remakes. Tony Scott was heavily attached to a remake. Uh-huh take place in LA. There's been all this talk, but one of the things I love about this is, and again, I don't think this is a spoiler. The assassination here feels almost like a, you know, of course he'll growing up in the sixties, like a a political assassination of the sixties. Yeah. Right. Is it, am I wrong in saying that that gun is the one gun in the film? No, I think there's, does it, is there another gang that draws guns? Because I don't think there is. I'm trying to think here. I felt like there was maybe one other one. So those, so the same gun is at the beach, obviously. Yeah, they bring it back. But I, I, I'm oh thinking, no 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 the Lizzies the Lizzies oh yeah yeah the Lizzies have a gun yeah Lizzie does the only two guns in the whole film yeah except for the cops the cops have guns but I don't think they I don't know if they ever pull them or shoot them oh they just use their, uh, their nightsticks yeah the nightsticks yeah. It's a good, um, can I, uh, you know, I want to mention this because I think it's, it bears mentioning. So when, when it gets to Bedlam, it really falls apart after the assassination. All those gangs are there. All those people are there, uh, at this big meeting at the park. I think it's Van Cortland park in New York, if memory serves. Um, that scene. And I, I, again, this is now me looking at it through a critical eye. In a way, it feels like Hill doing this kind of epic Hollywood thing where you'd get like Cleopatra or Ben-Hur with all these extras. And this is almost like the gritty urban 70s version of that, where he's got to pull this off with all these costumes, all these people, and make it very cinematic. And he does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, Can I also just – this is totally – inconsequential to our review, but I got to get this off my chest. Having seen this film well over 20 times in my life, I've always felt that uh, cowboy uh, Tom McKittrick looks like Anthony Kiedis a little bit. <laughs> well, he does. Yes, he I've does. I've always felt that. <laughs> yeah. um, 
<laughs> give it away, give it away, give it away now. Totally, man. Totally. Uh, I like the lighting in this film. It's something I, I, you know, I've noticed over the past few times I've seen it, like the color palette and the lighting, the lighting when Lynn Thigpen's on screen, the lighting when the guys in the Gramercy Riffs are talking to Masai and it's kind of shadowy. The the opening montage when they're kind of in the shadows talking about the meeting. I just love, you know, Laszlo's use of, of lighting uh, when he's shooting. And I love that Laszlo, you know, kind of urged Walter Hill to have the rainstorm early in the film because it allowed him to soak the streets and get that that sort of Michael Mann kind of wet streets look that we love so much. Yeah, I believe Laszlo shot Streets of Fire as well, right? Yeah, which makes sense because you think about that film and that is very wet neon film yeah and i'm trying to think if laszlo shot 48 hours but if i remember 48 hours has a lot of that as well i believe it does i've only seen 48 hours probably about two or three times yeah in it's a few years pretty sure I'm, I'm looking now to see but i'm pretty sure laszlo may have shot it as well but i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure which gives me a chance to mention too that evidently uh sonny landham's in this film playing one of the cops yeah, but I, I I can't make him out. I know I saw Irwin Keys. You know what's messed up is they almost cast Irwin Keys as uh one of the one of the Ajax. warriors. He has Ajax. Which <laughs> to me would have been such a misfire. <laughs> Irwin Keys is about ten years too old to play the role. Can you imagine Irwin Keys? In the vest? <laughs> First of all, in a vest. <laughs> Second of all, maybe I could see him as the, you know, the overly horny uh rapist character. Oh, Actually, the, the the cinematography on Forty Hours is by Rick Waite, but it definitely looks like a it definitely looks like a Laszlo film. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, but the, I know that originally Irwin Keys was <laughs> he was they were thinking about casting him as Ajax, and Walter Hill said he looks too old. I'm like, well, that ain't the only thing that's wrong there. <laughs> Would have been weird. I'll tell you what, man. Irwin Keys always he, he if you don't know him, picture like a much beefier Michael Shannon in a way. <laughs> Yeah, if they make an Irwin Keys biography film, Michael Shannon could play Irwin Keys. He probably could. Yeah, 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 yeah. Irwin Keys, is he still around or did he pass away? Uh, I think he's still around, man. I think he's like seventy-one. I'm on his. I'm on, I don't know where his age off the top of my head. I'm, I happen to come on to his. Um, oh no, he passed away. That's too bad. Yeah, that is too bad. Yeah, I thought he might have. I didn't remember. But if you folks don't know who Irwin Keys is, look him up. You know him without knowing him. You've yeah. seen him in something. He's. He's got an incredibly memorable face. He does. And uh, totally a unique character actor. Very much. And, you know, I didn't really realize this looking at uh, his photos on IMDb. It looks like he's uh, maybe mi a mixed race actor. Uh, I may Maybe. I don't know. I, wow. I, uh, if you go on his IMDb, man, that second photo, yeah. it's him yeah. at Friday the 13th. I didn't even realize he was in that. Uh, yeah, I think he's in that. He, he, well, he's in a lot of stuff that you... Yeah wouldn't expect him to show up in i mean if if you're a genre fan of the 70s and 80s you've seen him in a, a thousand things you have you i totally mean have. a thousand things he's been in just about every thing but a huge chunk you know stuff like chained heat and he's in exterminator 2 i remember that he's in I, new york genre stuff he's actually in one of the death wish films i can't remember which one it is four or five it's one of those two he's in that one as well <laughs> so yeah. he's done just about everything uh, oh yeah and uh yeah, uh, yeah. It's a shame he's gone, but yeah, he he synonymous with John Raffer. 
Yep. Yep. Absolutely. But yeah, it would have been very, I'm glad they went with uh, Remar. Remar's star was rising, obviously, um, you know, at this point. Right. So, you know, good actor, obviously. Um, funnily enough, there's that moment with Thigpen. I'm sure you had to think this when she's, she's talking to the mic. And I love this, how they frame her, just her mouth and the microphone. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think aesthetically, it's a really cool choice. Um, there's a moment she goes, adios. Yeah. So I've talked about before where that comes from, kind of. But maybe in some way it kind of subliminally, because when we originally did the show, we there was no plan to say adios at the end of the no. show. That wasn't like a yeah planned thing at all. That was literally the day of we recorded the first episode, and I just wanted to sign off, and I thought well, it would be cool to say adios. And yeah. it's just kind of stuck. And I wonder sometimes if it may have not come from this film as well. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I think it might have. Uh, and subliminally, I think it came from this film quite a bit. Yeah, interesting. I had that moment, though. I was like, wow, well, I wonder if I got that from this. Because I've seen it so many times, right? Oh, that's it. Like, is it baked in? Like, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting, man. It's interesting. Um, how about this, man? Luther, our guy Luther, he fucking hates paying for chocolate bars, man. <laughs> for what? Oh, man. He, he And I'll tell you what. He is such a, like, he is a great kind of wormy pest villain in this like he is just like this weasel just a little scumbag you just he's so good in the role i just, think yeah i think it's a genius move on walter hill's part and obviously david patrick kelly's part but definitely walter hill's part to make the main heavy of this film this little weasel almost spoiled brat type of gang even though clearly they come from poverty and stuff he just seems petulant and spoiled and very he's always even like poking and prodding his own gang members yeah he's just he's just a little shit just a little shit and for some strange reason that works because even the warriors when he's doing the infamous three bottle uh cadence of the warriors come out and play even they're off put by the childishness and the kind of psychication yes he's kind of a psychopath and yeah, is. honestly, I think in some ways, David Patrick Kelly's kind of responsible for our kind of love of bad guys who are just immature, uh, completely immature. Like, I don't know how influential he really is, but I think about the 80s action movies and there's a lot of bad guys like that. The ones that are just kind of off kilter and they're almost like they're just completely childish, but then they get a gun in their hand and they're completely dangerous. Yep. It's almost like Joe Pesci and fucking Goodfellas in a weird way. Yeah. You know, even though that's a more grown up performance, but you think about Joe Pesci's character in that film, he's very much a child of, you know, anger and violence. And he's just able to act upon it. Right. No, you're right. But that's, that's, that's the, the, the uh, character here. And he's intimidating. And, and, Kelly's like, yeah, he's completely over the top too, which is amazing. He's one of those jack-in-the-boxes that you just whine. You never know when he's going to pop. Yeah. Head's going to pop out. and Yeah. There's something just off-putting about him in general. His face, his demeanor. He's always been like that. I think in every film he's in, there's something just kind of sleazy about him. Oh, for sure. I hear he's a nice guy. I hear he's lovely. I'd love to talk to him. I'd love to talk to him. Uh, I also got to get this off my chest. This has been 
probably, well, it's been 20 years since I've thought this, but Deborah Van Valkenburg and my wife also thought this has to be the mother of Mina Suvari, right? <laughs> well, if she's not, then it's just one of those moments in time, right? Where you just, wow. it's almost like Joe Bernthal playing Robert De Niro's son in Grudge Fight yeah. or whatever. It's yeah, one of yeah. those moments just, where you think to yourself, wow, uh, you know, these these genetic things are cyclical or something. It's crazy, man. I mean, she to me looks like the tough New York mom of Mina Suvari. Yeah, like if, yeah. I, like if they were to make, kind of like what you talk with Erwin Keyes and Michael Shannon, if they were to make a uh, Van Valkenburg uh, biopic, Mina <laughs> Savari, and then if they were to make a uh, Robert De Niro biopic, Joe Bernthal. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, sometimes you just come across these actors, they're generational, but they just have so many similarities. Oh, yeah. yeah I, did, I didn't think about that, but uh, the Savari, Savari one, but now that you say it, yeah, I totally see it. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so the film moves through, right? And we're at different gangs. The Turnbull sees one is very thrilling. It's thankfully they they get away. And and I like the diversity, or not not culturally, because that's great. That that goes without saying. But thinking about the different style of gangs, because it's not just like the same, the same, the same. The Turnbull sees these big hulking kind of like skinhead looking, but again, they're mixed race. Um, uh, one sec. Yeah, no problem. The the not only the Turnbull Turnbull ACs, but I think all the gangs pretty much are of a mixed race, which is an important factor, I think. And honestly, I think leads to this film being a political film in a lot of ways. Uh, Walter Hill said before that he didn't set out to make a political film, but in some ways, that's what comes across as a, as a political film. And really, the politics of it are just the haves and the have-nots, mostly. Thank you back right on. Right. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It, it does. And it's never in a very hand ring. It's never hand-wringing or it never stops the film, right? It, it's just, it's there. We see it. Yeah. And I'll get to the scene, a really, really wonderful scene that only as a as an adult did I come to appreciate is maybe for me the best moment in the film. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, the scene with the Furies. So if I'm going to look at this through a critical eye, like we said, the, the, it's, the fight isn't as good as the fight with the punks in the, the subway station. That's the most sort of brutal, almost peck and paw, you know, slow-mo and stuff. Um the fight with the Furies at times is a little underwhelming, but the buildup to it is so good. The montage, the use of the music, the Furies are silent. The foot chase that leads up to it is all first rate. <clears throat> and it gives us, for my money, what might be, might be the greatest macho line in the history of cinema. And you know what I'm going to say. I do. <laughs> I'm going to shove that bat up your ass and turn you into a popsicle. <laughs> yes. It's a great moment. And it may be a line that James Remar will never escape in his career. Um, yeah, yeah. Here's what I'll say about the baseball fury sequence. I think, I, I think the best fight scene is the overall punks in yes. the, in the subway. Um, I do think that, um, but I think the best buildup moment 
is the Baseball Fury moment. 100%. Because what they do with the Baseball Furies, which is pretty great, is the Baseball Furies have a lair. They yeah, come they out of a lair. They select bats, which is amazing. They they really go all out. And then they come out of the subway at some point, and they turn around, and there's these guys just there in base, with baseball bats and makeup. And they're, as, con- yeah, they're as confused as we are. <laughs> yeah, and there's no one else around. It's it's very in a way it's eerie. It is. It's the most horrific moment, and mo- in a lot of ways the most post apocalyptic moment, even more yes. so than the Turnbull ACs. Um, and it's really great. Now the fight sequence doesn't quite pay off to the buildup, but no. man, it's 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 a it's a great sequence. It really is. It is a great sequence, and I love that again. Hill nods to samurai films. Yes, right. The baseball bat fight is essentially there's samurais, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's cool. Um, you know, we get through that, and and this, I love this line. This is a very G- Mercedes rule, and I we won't spoil it, although I'm sure you can see it coming a mile away. Uh, I love the line. This is such a GGTMC come on line. She says, "Look at all those muscles. I bet the chicks like all those muscles." <laughs> yeah. Well, it certainly gets to James Remar. There's no doubt about that. Man, does it ever. Although he needs some work with his gentle hand. He uh he he, he goes zero to sixty a little too quick. He's uh not the gentlest of lovers. <laughs> no. 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 Uh, I mean obviously there's some baiting going on, but I mean, you know, his approach it, it needs some work. <laughs> I think it's uh it's very much in line though with his character live by the sword, die by the sword, right? Like it is. It is. is most, you know, in today's eyes. You know, we very much see that he is sort of this very ugly, kind of toxic, hyper-masculine guy. And yeah, live by the sword, die by the sword, man. It's 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 very fitting, right? But I, I think we're supposed to identify with his character, but at the same time be repulsed by his character. Yes. As, yes, as males, anyway. I think well, it's agreed. What... And I think there is a a tragic element to his character because When he gets busted up and you see this look on his face, there's almost this this glint of, I mean, yeah, he obviously deserved what he got, but there's there's a childlike thing, is there? Right, exactly. There's this there's something a heartbeat in there that really kind of makes you think. You kind of lament a little bit of. It's a really strange decision. I, I thought that on this rewatch, I thought to myself, it's weird that Hill holds on his face because it's almost a moment of, I, I I didn't mean to. That's right. I'm sorry. I agree it's, with you it's 100%. A, it's a weird decision, and it kind of puts you off a little bit, but for whatever reason, it works. It does work. But again, it adds that nuance that, that Hill's not given enough credit for, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, um, so there's a couple of great dramatic moments here you know, in the film. I love, love the scene with Swan, Michael Beck, who we haven't talked a lot about. No. He's really good in this film, though. He's very good. He's very stoic. Unfortunately for him, in hindsight, he and I don't hate the film, but of course, you know, he shot himself in the foot by doing Xanadu next. Um, yeah, talk- yeah. I mean, Xanadu it, on paper it looked like it could be a big hit, though. You, well, for you sure, just never, maybe it looked like it was going to be something that would make him more accessible, more bankable. And sadly, it went the other way. But you know, that's how it goes sometimes. That's how it goes. Yeah, you make you a know. make a memorable film, and then you make another memorable film for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's almost like that career arc is almost like Bob Clark's Black Christmas to Christmas story, him going from Warriors to Xanadu. <laughs> yeah. 
It's uh, really interesting. But I love the scene with him and, and Mercy, Deborah Van Valkenburg, in the subway tunnel. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's a good sequence, yes. Well, it's a great scene. It's very urgent. And this is one of the kind of the social commentary moments in the film that uh, Hill sprinkles them in, and it never is to the detriment of the film or never takes away the propulsiveness of the film. No. She wants to sleep with Swan, Beck's character, and he's a bit disgusted with how overt she is about it. Mm-hmm. Because he's kind of very business, you know, he's very, he's, you know, stoic. Um, and then she's very urgent, and she says, you know, this is the life I have left. I look down the block. I see women with these kids. This is the life I have. Yeah, and it's I very love good. That. I love that moment. I think it's great. And there's a moment I'll talk about in a minute that alongside that one really gives that social commentary or observation moment. But um, you know yeah. what scene I don't think gets enough credit as far as tension building? I think it's a great scene. And it's a really um, – it's really it really adds sort of, again, that variety to the gang is the Lizzie's. It's, the, it's got this tension, this building tension that yeah. only Rembrandt yeah. picks up. Yeah, the, no, and and maybe Rembrandt picks up on it because it's never said, but maybe Rembrandt is a homosexual character. So he was, so Marcelino Sanchez was an openly gay. Yes, and, but, and, but Walter Hill never overtly says if he's homosexual in the film. No. But you certainly get the vibe that he's either very childlike and they kind of take care of him. Yep. Or perhaps maybe a bit feminine and yep. they overlook that. But of course, he's he, from their neighborhood. He's one of them, right? Yeah. He's one of their own. So, But he picks up, I think, on the whole underlying tension of that sequence. And so you become the Rembrandt character during that sequence. And it's pretty great. It's actually really well done. It's a great sequence, and it's it's tense, and you know it's coming, just like he knows it's coming. Man, I tell you, when I think about all the gang stuff, every gang that the Warriors come into contact with, either together or separately— Hill builds up tension in every sequence. Yeah, like the, the Turnbull one is very visceral. Um, the Baseball Fury one is very apocalyptic and horrific. Up is great. The scene with the Lizzie. The Orphans is kind of the throw-in, but even still, there's something to be said about that because... Yeah, but there's something off-putting about the Orphans from the get-go, being that Paul Greco yeah. is the leader and he's got that lazy eye and... and Mr. and Dirty and yeah. it's... And Paul Greco didn't live very long, but he worked with some great directors. He worked with Scorsese. I think he was in Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, New York guy, man. Yeah, a great actor, great actor. And yeah, uh, sure. I like I like the Orphans moment more as I've gotten older because they're a group of wannabes. Mm-hmm. And I get that now. And the, in the original, I always thought, well, originally when I used to watch, I used to think they were just kind of the lesser gang. But really, they want to be a great gang, quote unquote, but they don't have the resources. And they're so poverty stricken. I mean, even their shirts look, you know, poverty stricken, you know, right? Yeah. Like they just, this like iron on letters, those letters you could buy and you could just iron them on the t-shirt. Yep. And I, I've come to appreciate that, but he builds up tension in every single interaction with them and a gang. Even oh, yeah. the subway thing, Michael Beck's walking around by himself. You know, by the way it's shot and the way the music is playing that he's being watched. It's very eerie. And I love, I don't know what the, the sound on that synth is, but it's, I love the sound in those kind of spare quiet moments because the film's so propulsive. When we get these quiet moments, after a few seconds, our guard goes up. Yeah. And, and then we're looking around. you were looking around everything. And then eventually Hill gives us the glimpse of the one punk uh, kid on roller skates, which is or, a, a wonderful touch, by the way. It's a wonderful touch. Or the 
the footsteps of the cops. Yes. Right? Like you yeah, get yeah. Those oh, that's great. Yeah, the sound cues, right? yeah, yeah. Yep. Even the, if you look at the cops as a gang, which Hill's essentially stating that the cops yep. are somewhat of a gang as well. Absolutely, he is. Um, they also have a tension building scene. So it's genius to me that every interaction has built up tension. And you're talking about like five to six different interactions. All of those on top of the bookend and the back end within 90 minutes. It's amazing. It is just testament to wonderful economical filmmaking. But that scene, and I love it. So the scene with the with the jukebox, the Lizzie's Lair, great scene. And, and finally we get the great line, the chicks are packed. <laughs> And then it, it becomes like this peck. Imp- so they are the worst shot. She is the worst shot. She is to shooting what Gator is to driving. Yeah. I mean, she is a bad shot, man. Oh, man. I need to go back and watch Truck Turner. Good <laughs> Lord. She's a bad shot. And But that scene's great. And it, it's really great because it's they're in tight quarters. And then it gets kind of peck and paw with the slow-mo violence. That one stunt woman takes a good bump with that chair busted on her face. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She really does. I wonder that's if that's a good there, there, there's some good stunts in this. Of course, again, Craig Baxley's involved, so there would Baxley, be. Baxley, man. Um, so that's great. That's great. I love that. Uh, <laughs> the chicks are packed. They bust through. And that's when those characters, that set of characters, realizes, hang on. They think we shot Cyrus. Yeah. Because we haven't really said this, but the warriors are framed for this assassination. And now they got to fight their way back. And they, no and they lose kind of their... I don't know if he's their leader, but he's kind of their... Cleon is their leader, absolutely. Oh, Cleon, yeah. So Cleon's the leader. Michael Beck is the war chief. So it's kind of like a president-vice president situation. That's right. And then with Cleon gone, um, here we are. Michael Beck takes over, but James Remar is very upset because he's the very masculine uh, alpha male, and he wants the leadership. Um, because he feels like he deserves it because he's the aggressive one. And you're always going to run into that, males and alpha males and whatnot. Uh, yeah. But Michael Beck's the very calm, stoic, smart one. And yeah. uh, that's why he's the war chief, because he knows when to fight, when not to fight, when to run, when not to run. He understands the economics of being in a gang. And the reason why the warriors survive for the most part is because of Michael Beck's decisions. Yes, If, if Remar would have been left to it, if you recall throughout the film, and I know you do, he always just wants to turn around and fight. But if he, if, if, from the beginning, if they would have turned around and fought the Turnbull ACs, the movie would be over. They might have got a few good licks in, but there was 40 Turnbull ACs. There's only nine Warriors. <laughs> eight. There's only eight because one of them, Cleon, he gets taken out at the, at, the, at the gang summit. They would have taken on the Turnbull ACs had Ajax been the leader and they would have been chewed up right yeah. away yeah yeah like yeah. i said a few good licks they'd have been done they'd have been done yeah but that also builds up to what makes one of the great moments which is collectively they stand up more and more and more as the film goes along and they become more unified more yeah they run they run they run they fight a little bit they run they fight a little bit more they run they fight a little bit more to, to the point to where they get to the baseball furies they fight full on because it's a smaller gang, so they fight them all full on. And then from that point on, we realize that the reason why the Warriors are the Warriors is because they're, and I put this down in my notes, we realize throughout the film, at first they're running for their lives, but we realize the Warriors are kind of, they're kind of badass. They are. These guys can fight. Mm -hmm. And that's what 
Ajax was trying to say. It's like, look, we're 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 fucking badass. We can take these guys. Now, I still don't believe he would have taken on forty Turnbull ACs. No, man, those guys were angry. Those yeah. were some desperate dudes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or even the one line that the one character says, you know, when they talk about the orphans, he goes, "30s a lot more than eight. That's right. Uh, because it's a numbers game, and that's what Remar doesn't understand because he's full of machismo, but. Fox and Warchief and uh, Swan, they both understand you got to pick your battles. But they know they're badass, but they also know that numbers are numbers. If they listen to Kenny Rogers, <laughs> they'd know you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you know this, but secretly Walter Hill wanted to cast Kenny Rogers as uh, Cochise. Amazing. <laughs> Complete with roach clip kind of earring. <laughs> I wore those as a young kid. I, I don't know if there's any pictures. Oh, of that. and I got to see that. You can't tease us. Yeah, yeah, with feathers hanging out of there. Yeah, with long hair and feathers. Yeah, man. Amazing. Yeah, man. Um, it's talking about amazing. How about, so we get to that fight scene in the, the subway station with the punks, right, on roller skates. And I don't know if you know, I don't know if this term is like very regional or not, but do you know the move when like you British bulldog someone? Oh yeah, yeah. Just the yeah, the bulldog move itself. Yeah, grab like put him in a headlock and like run him into a wall or something. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Dude gets British bulldogged into a tile wall in this. This is the most physically punishing and like we had said before, the most well executed uh, fight scene in the film. Yeah, I think it's because I think that gang is all stuntmen. They're all yeah. It's it's like a dream team stuntman kind of uh, you know team. And most of the the guys, the actors did their own acting, but I think the scene when. Is it Vermin gets thrown into the mirrors? I can't remember now, but that I think is one of the few times when a stuntman did the did the action for them. But yeah, great sequence again. The buildup's great. As far as I know, Baxley is heavily involved in that sequence. He's in that sequence as one of the punks. Yeah, and uh, his brother is as well. And yeah. uh, obviously, if you know anything about the Baxley family, they're stuntmen through and through. So I think that's oh, why that one works the best. Agreed. Agreed. Um, the Baseball Fury one would be really good, again, if you didn't have characters watching around. Yeah, watching one of their teammates getting beat up and then wait until that teammate hits the ground and then running up and fighting. Classic, classic uh, miscue by a heel. Um, but yeah, the rundown, dirty, tight bathroom, Great buildup, great payoff. Reminded me of, weirdly, even though it has nothing in common with that film, weirdly it reminded me of The Bathrooms in Maniac. Well, same time, same place. Yeah, that's probably why. Right? Yeah, that's probably why. But it just, it gave me, I mean, obviously not as grimy as that, but it gave me that vibe, you know what I mean? I wouldn't be eating a corned beef sandwich off the floor of either washroom. <laughs> Nor cornbread. No, nor cornbread. I don't care if it's sweet cornbread or not. <laughs> if you're soaking up the urine, it'd be uh, some sour cornbread, brother. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, like uh, what's it called, man? Like, uh, like a fruitcake. Just so instead of soaking rum, it's soaking urine. Ugh, <laughs> gross. Instead of raisins, you get like cigarette butts and <laughs> oh, rat turds. It'd be rat turds. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I was getting hungry, but while we were recording the show here, but no longer. No, no way, man! That is disgusting. <laughs> oh man, I don't um, know why rat turds remind me of raisins, but they do. Oh man, yeah, they do a little bit, don't they? Uh, 
Okay. I, yeah. Good Lord. Um, how about this subway? So here's my favorite moment in the film. My favorite human moment in the film. Yeah, I know where you're going to go. Um, and I, honestly, I think this is the most political statement in the whole film because you heard what I said earlier about the haves and the have nots. This is the scene. So they're all dirty, bloody. They're tired. They're exhausted. They've been fighting all night. They're on the subway. These four affluent or upper middle class disco kids get on the train. They've had a night out, maybe a prom, maybe some sort of a, an event, dancing. And they look across at the, the warriors and mercy and the dirt on their feet and the, you know, the blood. And they're kind of a bit horrified. And it's not ham-handed. It's not heavy-handed at all. Um, and Mercy goes to fix her hair and Swan grabs her hand and puts it down and says, no, 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 you don't need to do that for anyone. And I just, I love that moment. It's, it's a very real moment in the film and in, in, a, in a film that is full of just alternate reality, right? And it's very sort of neorealist uh, moment in the film. And it makes us realize these are like these you know, kids that are on the fringes in a gang and, and it's just a cold dose of reality. Right. And then he picks up the flowers that fall and gives them to her. And yeah. So it's definitely the haves and the have nots. It's what you're born into. It's definitely, you know, the social structure you're kind of born into and how you either get out of that structure that you don't like, or you go into that structure that you do like. I mean, there can be kids that go from the haves to the have nots or the have nots to the haves. I think it's a very American and political commentary, though, to show these kids are totally oblivious. They get on the they get on the subway. They're so oblivious to what's sitting across from them yep. that there's plenty of seats open, but they sit right across from the Warriors and from Mercy, and they don't even realize they're so glib. They're so caught up in their own world of safety. And everything else. And really, if you think about it, Will, it's the only moment when outside forces are introduced to the film, I think. Yeah. Um, People so, from another world. Yeah, civilization, so to speak. Yes. It comes into the film. And I agree with you. I think it's an incredibly powerful moment where you got Mercy. They're looking at Mercy. She's thinking she needs to make herself look better because there's parts of her that wants to be that. There's probably parts of Swan that wants to be that, but he didn't have a chance. He didn't have a chance to be that, so he chose the life he chose. And what he's essentially saying by taking her hand down when she's trying to fix her hair is he's essentially saying, be proud of who you are, Yep. not proud of what you could become. That's right. And honestly, it's a very powerful, simple economic moment that says so much about the way these kids live and the way America is... You're you're really you're born into a situation in this country, in most civilized countries. Let me just say that I'm not going to say it's just America. That this is an American film. This is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So you can say this about it because it's an American film. But let's be honest. You're either born with or you're born without, and it's really that point blank. There's a bunch of in between. I understand. There's a bunch of in between blue collar workers and people who get by and everything else. I understand all that, but there is a huge divide. And, and I only know from my experience in this country, there's always a huge divide between the kids who have and the kids who have not. And it leads to lots of things. It leads to racial prejudice. It leads to 
uh, bad behavior. It leads to crime. It leads to everything because of this dichotomy. And it's not just an American problem. It's a problem around the world. Precisely. And all of that is said in like five minutes. Yep. It just, it's, and it never grinds the film to a halt. It never feels like it's standing on its soapbox, wagging its finger. Yeah. It's, it's an, all in service of the film, in service of fleshing out these characters, and if anything, making us care even more about them. It might be the single best moment in any Walter Hill film ever made. Oh, it's so good, man. And honestly, and one of the one of the great American film moments that is underrated. Agreed, man. Agreed. And I I didn't appreciate it until I was an adult, obviously, right? Right, right. How could I? Yeah. How could I? Um so, yeah, I don't want to talk too much on the ending of this film. It's great. It's at the beach. It's the first scene in the film and with daylight. This is one of those happens in one night films. Yeah, and I think it's genius to uh, – I know originally they were going to shoot it during the day to start and then do it all through the night and then do it the day to end. But it's actually genius to start it at night and work all through night and then – Into the day. Into the day where perhaps the most violence is going to happen. And kind of well, does yeah. theoretically, but or it does, but we we can't really get into that without spoiling the film for those who haven't seen it, which I'm sure there are some, believe it or not. But yeah, of course you can't see them all. But I'll say this: so being such a sort of obsessive about this film, I've seen the original opening they shot, and it's got Cleon and his girlfriend, and it's daytime, and it's at the boardwalk at Coney Island, mm-hmm. and the opening they have now does work better. It's interesting as a curio piece, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it takes away a little bit of the thrust from the film. So they were wise, I think, to go the other way. Yeah, it's, a, it's on the bonus features on the disc. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. Um, I'll just say one more thing about this film. If you ever doubted that um, Walter Hill loved Japanese films and samurai films, and I'd seen this film before I ever watched Yojimbo. <laughs> Which is a personal favorite of Walter Hill's. Absolutely. And he's done you know, he's done Yojimbo a few times, right? Last Man Standing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Sergio Leone and uh, Walter Hill, both maybe the biggest fans of Yojimbo ever born. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. I watched Yojimbo. And it's, I don't want to spoil it, but if you've seen Yojimbo and you've seen the finale of Yojimbo, and you know there's a gun, a lone gun throughout that film. Mm. And it's a lone, essentially a lone gun throughout this film. Mm-hmm. I watch Joe Jim when I go, oh my God, that's where Walter Hill got it. Uh-huh. A huge smile came across my face. So whenever I watch this film now, I smile and I think of, again, filmmakers can homage the films and filmmakers they love. And it can sometimes be to the detriment of the film. Or it takes away from the film or distracts, which we, you and I spoke earlier in this review. This feels so organic and natural to the film. It never feels like someone going, this is what I love. Look at this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the film, you know, cut to, cut to black, cut to, not cut to sunlight in the city. I, whenever I hear that, man, I just get happy now because I think they're home, man. They're at the beach. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 a nice moment. There's also there's something else in here. I'm pretty sure Quentin Tarantino cribs. There's a moment in here that Quentin Tarantino steals for a lot of his movies, and I can't remember if it's a line of dialogue or just a. Mo- oh, it's the uh, it's the 
Marcellus Wallace. It's 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 the end. Yeah, the you know you know what happens at the end and stuff. Remember Marcellus said in uh, in and Butch in the in the bunker. Yeah, yeah. So like you know, I'm gonna call up a couple of homies. We're gonna get medieval on his ass. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, we good. Oh, we good. We real. Yeah, yeah, good. yeah. Totally. That's what that's what he says. He says we're good. We're real good. Yeah, and it's totally stolen from that. You again. That's what when Tarantino's on on. That's what he does the best. You know, like the the famous uh, money's buck and I like to fuck scene, right? The that's yeah. stolen from a Toby Hooper film. It is absolutely stolen. Is it eaten a lot? No, not eaten alive. Yeah, it's a, it's eaten alive. It is, it is alive. Right, right, so right. Uh, Robert England says it. <clears throat> yeah, My name right. is Buck and I like to fuck. That's that sounds like Robert England. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, and uh, he, uh, but Tarantino definitely took that from the Warriors, no, no doubt, because that that one that character that takes over for Cyrus is like, oh, we're good, we're real good. I'm <laughs> yeah. got nice aviators, dude. And he's got like that Ric Flair esque kind of rhinestoney robe. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. So is that everything? You got everything? Because I feel like I've talked about it quite a bit too. I don't really have a whole lot more to add to what you said, but here's what I'll say. I, again, I've talked about this. Pound for pound, I think this is the leanest and maybe, and Walter Hill has a great filmography. I love a lot of his films. But I, I have to say that I think this is his masterpiece. Yeah, and that's saying a lot. I mean, that's like trying to pick Martin Scorsese's masterpiece, or trying to pick John Carpenter's masterpiece, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece, which we didn't mention him in the movie Bratz, but he's one of them too. You know, you go through these great filmmakers, Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece. Trying to pick your favorite film from your favorite directors can sometimes be the toughest thing to do, mm-hmm. because you usually like their whole body of work, even the lesser than films, because you think they're interesting, right? I, I I have beat myself up over this over the last week thinking about this movie. And, you know, do I love this more than Extreme Prejudice? Do I love this more than The Driver? Do I love this more than uh, 48 Hours, which I, I'm a huge fan of 48 Hours. Streets of Fire, which arguably comes the closest for me to being his masterpiece compared to this. Mm-hmm. And Crossroads, which I love, but I think The Warriors, pound for pound, Followed closely by Streets of Fire, which we did that with Davey back in the day, Davey Alcock. I think yeah. we reviewed that. I think this this is Walter Hill's shining moment. Now, don't get me wrong. He has a lot of great moments after this, and including some films that nobody talks about, including a, basically a remake of Yojimbo, which is Last Man Standing, which yeah. I remember watching and not really caring for. I need to revisit that because I've heard a lot of people really like it, and I didn't like it the first time I saw it. Yeah, no, it wasn't very well regarded, man. Yeah, yeah, but I need to go back and look at that. You know, recently he made a film, Dead for a Dollar. I like the film. It's well done. Uh, the only problem is it, it's it's shot digitally, and it looks really cheap, And it, but it's good. It's really good. It, I, not great, but Christoph Waltz versus Willem Dafoe, it's, it's worth it to see it for that reason. Um. And I, I, I quite dug it, to be honest with you. And it also deals with race and stuff. And it shows that Walter Hill still is doing the same things he was doing back in 79. Mm-hmm. And that he doesn't judge by race. He judges by man, mm-hmm. by morals. And I, I find that still amazing. Like, like even in 48 Hours, he doesn't judge the Eddie Murphy character. He no. lets the Eddie Murphy character be himself. And that, that's important because it's, it'd be easy to judge that character. 
Uh, actually, he makes the Nick Nolte character the judgeable one because he's kind of prejudiced and kind of shitty. Yep. And uh, that's that's actually very progressive, especially in 1982. I mean, people think, well, in 1982, we were past that. No, we weren't. <laughs> no, we weren't. We weren't. We weren't past that yet. In some ways, we still aren't, but I, I think we're more past it than we've ever been. But I just think that this is this movie has a perfect beginning. It has a perfect setup throughout with multiple great scenes. And it has, honestly, a perfect ending. That's almost melancholic, yet uh, profoundly optimistic. Even though we know we've been with these characters and we know what they've been through. Mm -hmm. And for that, I have to say, I mean, this is one of the great American films. Period. People say it's a genre film. It is. It is all those things. But one of the great things about American films is we make really good genre films in this country. And mm-hmm. we're not, we don't celebrate that enough. No. And Walter Hill is one of the great, and I mean one of the great genre filmmakers. And this movie, it's everything. It's a Western, it's a post-apocalyptic film, it's an action film, it's a drama. It's a, mar- not, I would say martial arts, but like street fighting. I mean, yeah. there's so many different elements in there's this. There's a romantic angle. It has everything. Yeah. And some have criticized again that he doesn't really do the strong female thing, but I would argue that he does. I think that the uh, Diane Lane character in Streets of Fire, uh, the Amy Madigan character, is it Amy Madigan in that film? Amy Madigan, she's good in the film. Yeah. She's got a terrible haircut, but she's she's good in the film. But Jamie Gertz in Crossroads, which I know you haven't seen, but Ellen Barkin. uh, Don Valkenberg's very good in this film. She's very resilient. Yeah. To be the only woman. In a group of of masculine, hyper masculine street fighting men, yeah, she holds her own. And listen, you know what's funny? She broke her arm. I just found that. So, did you read this in the trivia? I, I did. Well, actually, I watched the commentary track on the disc, and I, I, I honestly, I didn't know until I watched the commentary track. I didn't know until last night. She broke her arm, which is why they introduced the whole thing about the jacket. She wears a jacket. At some point, she pops up with a jacket and everything. Yeah. And you're like, why is she wearing a jacket? But you don't even think about it because you just move on. You write it in really smoothly. And I love that she bites the one punk during the fight, too. (laughs) That's good. That's good. I love that they bring her in, too. Let's not not forget that. They're not going to let her stay out. They're going to let her get involved. Like, she is, for all intents and purposes, she is a warrior. She's all in, man. Yeah. So She will get that vest after all. Yeah, she'll get that vest after all. That's right. And I, I don't think it's by circumstance that Hill did that. I think that he set that up. She wants the vest. First time we meet her, she's really kind of got this machismo herself. She wants a vest, really like that vest. And uh, she's going to earn that vest. The Warriors are going to make sure she earns that vest. So anyway, I just think pound for pound. And let's not forget that Walter Hill is responsible in some ways for maybe the most macho female character ever created, and that's Ripley from Alien. Yeah. So let's not... Yeah, yeah so let's not forget. I mean, Walter, again, he's been criticized for mostly being a masculine filmmaker. But I think that, honestly... He's a progressive filmmaker. He's a progressive filmmaker. And one that, because he's so misunderstood, I think that's the reason why he works. Yeah. And you I, know what's funny thinking about this, and this is a very personal uh, observation, but Dan O'Bannon and Walter Hill were involved in that franchise. Mm-hmm. Alien, of course, is what I'm referring to. And they've seen, like, with Return of the Living Dead and this, two of the three films I've seen most of my life. It's it's funny that, you know, those guys work together, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they're a huge part of, you know, who you are. And I exactly. think, honestly, Walter Hill, 
and Dan O'Bannon are a huge part of a, a whole generation of film fans yeah. uh, for whatever reason. And I, honestly, Dan O'Bannon, even though he didn't work nearly as much, he's also what I would consider an economic filmmaker. Oh. Well, we, when we reviewed Return of the Living Dead, we talked about his economy of filmmaking and some of the brilliant things they did to keep the film moving. Mm-hmm but also give us everything we need as viewers to be engaged and invested um, as viewers. Yeah. Same as uh, Walter Hill, Dan O'Bannon and John Carpenter. I put those three, those three know what they're doing. I don't think Dan O'Bannon's yes. a good, a fil- as good a filmmaker as Walter Hill and John Carpenter. But he's very good, but he is very good. And honestly, you should have worked more. That's the he, real shame of Dan O'Bannon. It's a tragedy. Yeah, it is. Um, I don't have a lot more to add. I love this movie. I'll love this movie until I'm dead and gone. I don't know if it's a top 10 film, but it certainly has to be in my top 10 or top 20 films ever made. I mean, it really does. I mean, I just, I think it's, I just think it's the American genre masterpiece. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And, and uh, it holds the, it, it just stands the test of time. You know, uh, homosexual bad mouthing aside, it really does stand the test of time. It does. It and, does because it's a, this kind of alternate, slightly alternate dimension, right? It's fantastical, but also very gritty, right? It's, yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, any, yeah make or breaks MVTs. Go ahead. Okay, so make or break. I, where do I go with this? I mean, I could go with a million <laughs> things, but I'm going to go with the opening here. Okay, okay. As much as I want to go with that neo-realist moment that we really celebrated early in our review a few minutes ago, the opening to me really sets us up. I mean, it's got the montage. What do you know about Cyrus and the lighting and the neon of the Wonder Wheel and all these gangs and the characters we're going to follow through the night? It sets it up so well. Mm-hmm. It really does. And it, you know, it just the train, the spray paint credits. It just it gets us going, man. And then uh, right into the the meeting, and and here we are. So that's my make or break. MVT is going to be the ultimate. Have my cake and eat it too. <laughs> I, I, I can't. It's our show, man. It's our show. It's our show. We make through. So I could say Walter Hill. You can. But we'd be doing a big discredit to Baxley. Baxley. To the cast. Andrew Laszlo. Laszlo. Yeah. The costume designer, Bobby Maddox. The design is, is so inspired. Yeah. Um, on and on and on we can go. So I'm going to say every – see, we're not, you love a film deeply. Um. I, like I do with this, you do with this. I'm going to go with everyone involved in this production. Okay. Because to me, everyone played their part. And without them playing their parts, and David David Patrick Kelly is this weasel, toady, you know, just on and on. Um, everyone does their part. You got a classic. Yeah. Because we have. And my score for this one's an 8.75. Um, I love this film. Uh, you know, I could go... Maybe I could go nine. I don't know. It just, it, to me, I don't know what I would change about this film. Well, I really don't know what I could change. Yeah. So I'm going to, yeah. Okay. All right. Are you, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to tell you. <laughs> you let me hear it, man. Let All right. All right. So make a break for me. I am going to go with the neorealistic moment because I do believe that that is like a super important moment. Don't get me wrong. Everything you mentioned is correct as well. As a matter of fact, you could say it about every sequence in this movie, I think. As a make or break scene. You could make an argument for any of the scenes. I, I think so. I, I really do. I think the Turnbull AC scene is great. I love the fact that the way they turn around, they know they're in deep shit. That's a great moment. I think the baseball fury moment, the build up to that moment is great. 
claustrophobia of the Lizzie's sequence where it's almost like a Hitchcock moment where we know and um, Rembrandt knows, but of course Vermin and Cochise are gleefully oblivious. Yeah, they're they're just horny. They're just horny kids. Um, the Coney Island sequence at the end, brilliant, gr- just great. The Coney Island sequence at the beginning, great. Uh, the orphan sequence, honestly, I used to kind of kind of poo poo that sequence, but honestly, it's a really good sequence. It is. Uh, so many moments, so many moments in the film. Uh, you could really, this is a film of make or breaks, to be honest with you, and they're all makes to me. Uh, MVT for me, you know, I was just going to go Hill, but I, I think I'm going to agree with you and I'm going to go with you on this. This is a, this is an everybody all in thing. Yeah. This is one of those moments where everything came together and created, honestly, in my opinion, one of the great American films. Um, it's political. It's, it's youthful and full of energy. It's important. And it shows so much of what some of these kids was going, were, were going through. And maybe kids still are going through. I know gangs aren't really a big thing, but they're still out there. And I just think it's it's super important to show the haves and the have-nots sometimes. And sometimes the have-nots don't get enough of their story told. So, yeah, it's a little exaggerated, but I'm okay with that. Because exaggeration in storytelling still makes you think about the reality. If you, if you have any thinking bones in your body. Mm-hmm. Not that the brain's of the bone, but still, you know what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> my score for this film... I'm just gonna say it, man. This this is this is a perfect movie. This is a ten out of ten. So I'm gonna go nine. I'm gonna shift. <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't know why I don't go ten. I just yeah. I can't have anything I would change. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, there's nothing I think you could do to make this film. I don't even know why Walter Hill I know why he went back and did the things he did. Because I don't that's have a problem with those. We haven't talked about that. And sort yeah. of I don't have a problem with that stuff, to yeah. be honest. I mean, it's it's not bad. It's not as bad as people make it out to be. No. But I don't think I don't think it really I think the problem is it doesn't add anything to what is already arguably a perfect movie. Yeah. And I don't it's it it's kind of my opinion of honestly of the first Star Wars film. I don't yeah. think the first Star Wars film necessarily is a perfect movie, but I think it's close to perfect. And I don't think that you know, when when George Lucas went back and messed with it, I don't think he needed to. I think it was fine the way it was. Don't get me wrong, I don't judge him for doing it. I, I, I'm not that kind of film fan. I understand why he did it. You know, he's tinkering with his toy. I, I get it. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know if you need to all the time. I, I really just don't know if you need to, but I understand filmmakers want to do what they want to do, but I'm, I'm just going to say perfect. That's a perfect movie. It's a great American classic. Um, you, it's a must own. I'm just going to go over some of the, because arrow sent the disc. I'm going to go over a couple things. There's uh, a new interview with Walter Hill who uh, is getting older, obviously, but still quite sharp. Uh, he talks about the film some. There's an audio commentary by Walter Chaw, who actually uh, wrote a book on Walter Hill, which I've been meaning to get. And as a reminder that I need to get the book, the book's a little pricey, but it's called A Film by Walter Hill. And it's kind of a just a look at all of his films and kind of the themes of Walter Hill's filmography. Because like a lot of great auteurs and filmmakers, he has themes. Uh, mostly masculinity, but again, strong female characters, which he doesn't get a lot of credit for. Uh, it's got another great conversation between Josh Olson, Lexi Alexander, and uh, I think Robert Kraskowski, who directed The Man Who Killed Bigfoot and Hitler or whatever that film was. Oh, yes, yes. I remember Todd telling me that film was actually really good considering the title and stuff, and I never have watched it. I need to check it out. But Todd says it's really good. Todd, shout out to Todd. 
Shout uh, out to Todd. Um, and it's got some other uh, little moments in there. Uh, it's got the original retrospective of the archive. Uh, it's got an appreciation of the music from Neil Brand. You, again, you can get the 4K. It looks amazing. The Blu-ray also looks amazing. Comes with all the same stuff. Arrow doing the Lord's work. I mean, there's a reason why these labels, Arrow, Criterion, Vinegar Syndrome, and things like that, I think will always be around because of their love of movies. And this is another example of why physical media is important. Don't get me wrong. I buy digital stuff all the time and everything else. I'm, you know, it, it just is what it is. Rick, I got to take a call. Yep. It is what it is. But I love the physical media in here. And, and, and this is one. Please support Arrow on this one because this is one of the best releases of 2023 going into 2024. But, yeah, check out that disc if you get a chance. Uh, oh, yeah, you got it. Yeah, you got to get it. I mean, if you're a fan, you got to have it. I know I think Umbrella Entertainment or somebody put out a special edition that's really good. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, obviously the show is sponsored by Arrow, and, and, and it might seem like I support every Arrow release. Uh, if that was the case, we'd cover every Arrow release. But uh, the the truth is I kind of pick and choose what we cover, and um, this one just – it had to be covered at some point, and I'm just glad we got to cover it in this way. So um, that's it. Uh, Will, you're selecting the film next week. Uh, what do you got on – what do you got on the docket for us, brother? Yeah, so, I, you know, we try to expand our horizons, and, and uh, we're going to take – we're going to take a trip from uh, Coney Island, New York, to Calcutta, India. <laughs> and we're going to rewind back in time 16 years before the Warriors. And uh, we're finally going to cover a Satyajit Ray film. Truth be told, he's a filmmaker that uh, I've always admired from afar. I haven't seen a ton of his films other than the Apu trilogy. Um, but I felt like you know it was time we, we get him on the show. So we are going to be talking about uh, a film of his that uh, I felt like was a little outside of what we normally do, but it's his 1963 film, The Big City. Nice. Get into some Ray, Ray Jam next week. Well, it has to be, I mean, The Big City, it has to be Warriors-like, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, there is talk of uh, makeup, but a little different from the Furies makeup. <laughs> yes, yes. Although, quite as, just about as powerful. Yeah, there is some emotional heft to the makeup. That's Full disclosure, sure. we've already seen the film, but we'll be talking about it here in a little bit. But yeah, yes. a lot to say, a lot to say. Um, all right. Definitely uh, check out the show. Check out our friends. Uh, Not a bomb. Watch Get Plus. They're on hiatus. They're hopefully coming back. I've been poking and prodding Justin behind the scenes to get back in the saddle. He's been busy for the holidays. I know the business he works in because I work in a similar business, so I know the holidays can be a nightmare. Uh, hopefully they'll be back soon. Jose and Justin miss those guys. Uh, not a, like I said, not a bomb, uh, Mary clickers, feminine critique. Uh, love that album. See her podcast, um, chin stroker versus punter Raiders of the podcast. Am I missing anybody? I don't know. <laughs> Neither living podcast. There we go. Uh, again, auto record a one, but then the minute I record it, we'll make new friends and I'll be like, shit, got to go back this and record is- it again. <laughs> This is very if I, true. If I didn't mention you and you're part of the community, uh, my apologies. Uh, you know, this is all about support and everything else. If we're friendly, I support you. Trust me. Yep. Uh, the the Back Look Podcast, friend of uh, Troy's and the, by Alonzo. I'll, I'll, I'll try to mention you from now on, but 
uh, he's asked me to come on the show and stuff. And I just realized that he asked me because he asked me via Instagram and I don't check my Instagram messages much. I just checked it this morning because you said something about it. So there you go. I'll see. I'll see if I can get on there, Alonzo. But um, anyway, uh, check out those shows. We're going to jump off here and I hope 2024 is a great year for you. Happy New Year's. This will be releasing on New Year's Day. So happy New Year. Uh, resolutions aside, take care of yourself. That's all that matters. Both uh, whether you want to do it physically, whether you want to do it mentally or tackle a task or find a new hobby or just do anything. Just take care of yourself. That's the important thing. Love each other. And you're not to, not to get too hippy dippy here, but I promise you, if there's one piece of advice I can give folks in the 50 years I've been on this planet, love each other. And I promise you everything works out. That's right. Yeah. So I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.